0: A good Thursday morning to you On this May 13th I've just got a text from my pal Tim He says today's a good day to buy Bitcoin He's the type of guy that keeps an eye on on the markets As they rise and as they fall As they rise and they drop It depends on whether you're an optimist A pessimist Some of you may still have questions about crypto If you do I mean, it could even begin with, is this even a thing? Is this going to be a thing five years from now? Why is this a thing? The best place to take those questions is Bitcoin Well, the proud presenting sponsor of this show. Each and every morning, we remind you that if you'd like to get in touch with the team at Bitcoin Well, headquartered out of Edmonton with Bitcoin ATMs across the country, it's as simple as checking out our website, RyanJesperson.com, under the
1: Sponsors tab. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Well,
0: it's a heck of a morning here. It promises to be such on Real Talk. We've been working, uh, and by we, I mean producer Sarah Hoyles has been working tirelessly on putting together, uh, this is a bit of an unusual broadcast, a themed show where we're going to be talking about hunting and eating meat and food production, and plant proteins, and poverty, and disparity, and nutrition, and all the cool stuff that that we really don't sink our teeth into as often or as frequently as we should as human beings. Would you agree? I mean, if you think about it, what we do to survive, we should really spend more time talking about food, clean air, and clean water. And we really don't. I mean, sometimes we do on this show, we talk about clean water because... Governments are trying to, you know, coal mine on the eastern slopes of our Rocky Mountains. Are we talking about clean air because governments suspend environmental monitoring of the oil sands through the course of a pandemic? And, and we talk about food because governments pull funding from associations of, you know, plant protein alliances, crop farmers in our neck of the woods who say that a measly quarter million would allow them to continue their advocacy and grow Canada's economy and Canada's agricultural industry. So we do spend time talking about what we eat, what we drink, and what we breathe, but oftentimes it's prompted by the politics, right? The show follows the politics, and that's how we cover subject matter. Have we talked about inequality, uh, you know, around marriage or around groups of people, the LGBTQ2S plus community, or people of color, or young people, or seniors, or you get the idea, sure, but it's all driven by politics. Today's going to be a little bit different. If you were listening to the show a couple of weeks ago, you know that we, I don't even remember how it got on our radar to begin with, Sarah. Uh, how did we start talking about this? We talk, the elephant video drove me crazy. That was it, right? That was the one. It was it was the it was the high-ranking NRA guy, I should remember his name, I don't. Some jackass who went with his wife uh on on a big game hunt. And he took down an elephant and the video was making the rounds. number one, just because I think that's the type of video that that catches fire and that people watch. And number two, because one of the heads of the NRA can't really shoot a rifle very well. And people were snickering and laughing about that. All I could think about is this majestic beast, the largest land mammal walking planet Earth, laying there dead because some jerk with a small dick had to take it down. It drove me nuts and if you were watching the show that morning, you know, we didn't plan on talking about it. We just did talk about it because I couldn't stop thinking about it. I was reading this paper or that reading this email or that reading a tweet, reading our live chat, talking to you. But all that was going on between my ears was that dead elephant laying on the ground. It was it was it, it was infuriating me. And so we started by talking. If you remember, and I'm going, hey, listen, I've got a ton of respect for hunters. I do. And I'm going to get into that. I'll, I'll, I'll kick off. Our conversation stayed with a bit of a position statement. So you kind of know where I'm coming from. But Sarah started working right away on finding diverse perspectives. You know, some people, they're going to see my tweet this morning talking about where the show is going. And they're not going to listen because they think that Jesperson, some, some, some commie, some leftist, is going to try to get us all off meat. Is going to try to have the federal government pull you know, hunting permits, or people are going to, we're going to take everybody's long guns. That's not the case. You're going to hear from some passionate hunters today. You're going to hear from people that talk about the ethics of meat. You're going to hear from people that are exploring food sustainability. And of course, you, Real Talkers, are going to play a huge role in this conversation. We're going to be keeping an eye on our hashtag, RealTalkRJ. We're going to be keeping an eye on the live chat. And of course, we're going to be checking our email inbox through the course of the broadcast, talk at com. But first, I love the smell of mutiny in the morning. Have you seen this letter that dropped overnight? He's now the former United Conservative Party caucus chair. Caucus chair is a big deal. It's a big position to hold. And that's why people are paying very close attention to. To a letter that was posted publicly last night on MLA Todd Lowen's Facebook page. I'm not going to read the whole thing. You can read it. It's all over Twitter. I retweeted it around 630 this morning. He says, Premier Kenny, it's with a heavy heart. I must inform you of my decision to step down as UCP caucus chair. I no longer believe caucus can function properly. Meetings have been canceled without consent. Significant decisions of government made without notice to members and our input rarely considered. He says, I feel it's best to resign this position to be able to speak freely. We've faced persistent problems. Now, let me jump in for a second. Real talkers, there are some red flags in the letter. Okay, I'm not endorsing Todd Lowen for premier this morning. For example, quote, the government's response to a hostile federal government has been perceived as weak and ineffective. Okay, so who's Todd Lowen? Todd Lowen is a a rural MLA, an experienced MLA. He's been around for a while in the Wild Rose Party, a social conservative. He was one of the 17 MLAs who signed that letter, who essentially put out a public statement that that they don't agree with the position that the provincial government's been taking on public health measures and COVID-19 protocols. But if you're an ICU nurse, they're not going in the direction you'd like him to go okay this the letter that these 17 signed are essentially calling for the lockdown to end for mask orders to end or at least to be applied individually to different municipalities or regions of the province so so todd lowen some people are suggesting uh, may not deserve the, the the sort of knight in shining armor status that is being bestowed upon him this morning my commentary and our coverage of this story should not be perceived as as some form of endorsement of of any elected official that is now walking out of step with Premier Jason Kenney and his inner circle. This is a story about dissent within. This is a story about a dysfunctional caucus cabinet, a dysfunctional government. It's a story of a premier whose jig is up, quite frankly. It's a story of pundits Who are being proven right two and a half years after they first sounded the alarm some of them paying a pretty steep price for some of the truths that they've told lowen goes on to say the caucus dysfunction we are presently experiencing is a direct result premier kenny of your leadership messaging from your government has been contradictory confusing needlessly inflammatory Alberta now faces a troubling economic crisis with historically high unemployment, dying small business and staggering levels of debt. The people of Alberta have lost trust in this government. This is the former caucus chair. Lost trust in this government because you have not brought needed balance and reason to the discussion. Albertans and our party members deserve better. Albertans perceive our government as out of touch and arrogant. And they expect our caucus to bring their issues of concern to the government. Many of us have tried to do so only to be ignored and dismissed. He says, personally, I've helped build the conservative movement in the province for 13 years. I have served faithfully, says Todd Lowen, as a public servant. He says, I I believe I still represent the will of the party's grassroots. I am not leaving the party, says Todd Lowen. He resigned as UCP caucus chair, not as an MLA. He says, our understanding was that we had united around shared principles, integrity, common sense approaches to governing. We did not unite around blind loyalty to one man. I mean, you kind of did. He says, and while you promoted unity, it is clear that unity is falling apart. Many Albertans, including myself, no longer have confidence in your leadership. I thank you for your service, but says the former caucus chair of the ucp i am asking that you resign so that we can begin to put the province back together again this is a remarkable development a few obvious things should probably still be stated number one it makes sense why jason kenny's canceled goings-on at the alberta legislature right accountability in action you might scoff facetiously he knew this was coming i wonder if perhaps everybody in the alberta legislature knew that this was coming but what does this mean and what was the straw that broke the camel's back there are problems within here i mean the story that made news just a couple of days ago was alberta's justice minister i really when i when i tell these stories and when i convey my thoughts i try i try to put the emphasis on the words that we really need to consider alberta's justice minister I mean, if you need steadfast leadership on which files do you need them? Now, you'd be right to say, well, all of them, please. Justice, health, education. These are where we expect stability, where we where we need it. And Alberta's justice minister, he's since apologized after his team said he wouldn't. Went on record to say that that he believed that His political opponents, the provincial NDP, the federal liberals, the federal government, Justin Trudeau in particular, and the media want to see the healthcare system struggle and ultimately fail. You can read his ridiculous statement for yourself, but he went on to essentially paint a picture of of people gasping on ventilators in field hospitals. That's what the media wants, he said. It's what his political opponents want. How did Jason Kenney enter the picture on this? A day later. The guy known, the guy, the guy that, that was, uh, I believe it was McLean's Magazine. Was it McLean's Magazine that, that bestowed the title, the, the hardest working? It may have been the Hill Times. I can't remember. I know that Sarah will find out for me, but, but it, was, it was the hardest working MP in Ottawa. Is that right? I'm trying to remember who it was that they called him that. We'll fact check it. We'll let you know. But Jason Kenney was known as the hardest working MP in Ottawa. People that, that have, have, have written features on him and, and opinion editorials. People have talked about how he's up at three in the morning, pouring over files, how he micromanages his departments, right? 24 hours after Casey Maddews statements, what was Premier's message to the people of Alberta? I haven't seen what he said. Bullshit. Nobody can believe anything coming out of this guy's mouth anymore. Some people haven't believed him since the very beginning. Some people saw this coming. Others Now are realizing what happens when you hit your wagon to a horse like this. So we have now a prominent MLA, a former Wild Rose MLA, stepping forward saying it's time for Premier Kenny to resign. Is Premier Kenny going to resign today? Like hell. So what does this mean for the government? What does this mean for the United Conservative Party? And ultimately, what we care about most, what does this mean for the people that live here? Your government is not properly functioning right now because there are major internal problems with the leadership and that's impacting everybody at a time of crisis this isn't me fanning the flames this isn't me whipping everybody into a frenzy Alberta's in trouble right now Of all the jurisdictions across Canada, on the health front, Alberta is most in trouble. Without taking away from somebody in in Newfoundland or Ontario or Saskatchewan whose mom's on a ventilator right now. I'm not making this personal. Of the provinces and territories, you look at the numbers, Alberta is a disaster compared to everywhere else. Economically, Alberta is in the most trouble. Alberta, like everybody else, will will see a struggling economy. That's, by the way, showing early signs of recovery. That's pretty exciting. But Alberta's economy is built on and based on an industry that was struggling before the pandemic. You all know this. I'm not going to go into it. I will respect your intelligence on recognizing the background of why Alberta needs to diversify, why Alberta needs strong leadership and a sense of, as the great one would say, where the player the puck is going not where it's at right now not where it's been for the last 80 years so you may see some mlas today that will that will join the chorus of todd lowen you may see some others stepping forward in the days to come i'll be curious to see when we start to hear from people that could be perceived as potential successors to the leadership of this party in order to be irresponsible and throw names out there, I have no personal reason to throw this name out there. I have no insight that that you don't have, but I've seen a lot of people on my Twitter this morning wondering, "Where's Brian Jean? What's Brian Jean doing right now?" Uh, Brian Jean's no stranger to the Alberta legislature. He's been there before. Leader of Alberta's official opposition, never won an election. Was never the premier, is what I mean. A lot of people are wondering if it might be him. Other people are saying, hey, listen, if if someone like Todd Lowen's going to take over the party or, or, or the names that you're sending me this morning, these are names you're sending me. Minister Tyler Shandro, Minister Jason Nixon. People are saying this is no better for the people of Alberta. People want to know what this means for the future of the party, for the future of policy in Alberta. How might Jason Kenney respond to this? Will he take pause and think about it? Will he respond in thoughtful fashion, approach the people of Alberta, perhaps apologize for where he's fallen short and resolve to do better? No. So we'll be keeping an eye on this story. I'm curious to hear your thoughts. We'll be getting into them. We did not intend to talk about anything other than hunting and meat and food production today. But sometimes I said yesterday, I asked for it. Sam and Sarah knew it. They looked at me. They knew it when I asked for it yesterday, when I said, unless all hell breaks loose, We're only talking about the sustainability and ethics of food tomorrow. Well, all hell has broken loose. Someone early this morning reached out. I think the tweet came at like 545 and they were like, does this qualify? I said, yeah, this qualifies. Do
2: you think Todd Lowen was listening yesterday? Perhaps.
0: Maybe this was fast tracked. Yeah. Yeah, you never know. It was an interesting one, right? Kim Trenacity, uh who's done a great job uh, as a journalist in Alberta for, for many years, uh, tweeted at me this morning, and I thought that Kim was bang on. Bang on. She says, I mean, you know, Mr. Lowen, MLA Lowen's uh, post, you know, tacked up on Facebook at three o'clock in the morning. One of you said to me, nothing good happens on Facebook at three o'clock in the morning. But this wasn't some drunk rambling sent with fat fingers from his phone as he was walking the dog at three in the morning. This is on his letterhead. It's a signed letter. This is not an accident. This has been coming for a while. I guarantee it. Kim says late enough to creep in undetected, yet early enough to attract the morning news runs that will unfold through the day this was a strategic pre-dawn play the premier cannot swat away back to my words not kim's the knives are out what i would give for access to some text messages that'll be flying back and forth today the premier's inner circle will rally around him but these are the ones that have got premier jason kenny in trouble This is a guy that could not possibly understand why you would have a climate activist, somebody like Zipporah Berman, to sit and serve on an energy panel, talking about the future of the oil sands, talking about pipelines. Why would you possibly have a voice that would look to act against the interests of the energy industry and serve the environment first? And, of course, many people said, well, dissenting opinions are important and discussion and debate is important. And, and what value is a panel if you only put like minded people on the panel? I mean, look at our segments coming up today. Look at our roundtables. Jessica Reed, I'm so excited that she's joining us, an animal advocate, a podcast host. Jess is known across she's known across North America for her work, maybe around the world. She tweeted last night. She's excited to be joining us. She says, I'm going to be joining some people whose uh, opinions, uh, you know, probably don't align with mine. That's the whole point. Jason Kenney has built his staff, three million dollars a year, by the way, out out of people that will blindly support and follow him. People whose ideologies align with his. And it's why there's been such an unapologetic and inflammatory approach to virtually everything. He believes he knows everything about everything and he's right about everything. And politicians now, of course, serving their own interests. Let's not fool ourselves. Let's not be delusional or naive. They're serving their own interests. They're worried about their own reelection. Are starting to speak out. Now it's your turn. The hashtag is RealTalkRJ, and we'll be keeping an eye on it through the morning. That hashtag is powered by the team at Park Power at parkpower.ca. Right now, you can learn more about what they've been doing for coming up on 10 years when it comes to internet, electricity, and natural gas in the province of Alberta. They take 10% of their profits and push them back into the nonprofits where they live and work, which is what we love. You have to follow them on Instagram and Twitter. They're probably on Facebook, too. I'm spending less and less time on Facebook. How about you? Are you on Facebook? Uh, I am, but begrudgingly. I'm falling out of love with it. Then again, Todd Lowen just posted his letter to Facebook. Facebook's still powerful for a lot of people.
3: I mean, it's for a certain demographic It seems to be yeah. Shifting older um, Which So it I mean It's Who are you Wanting to speak to So I, I think that
0: Yeah Maybe but, I should Maybe I should Fall back in love with No fall back in love With Facebook That's a terrible slogan <laughs> I know a lot Maybe of I'll even go Like Park Power On Facebook today Maybe Ooh. I'll Maybe I'll even Remember my Facebook Password Maybe I'll get back In there Maybe I'll go Like Park Power On Facebook As a matter of fact I'm going to I resolved to do that Today I resolve. I, I resolve. Just for And I mean what I say. <laughs> Parkpower.ca. 70 bucks off your first bill if you use the promo code 2021-REALTALK. 70 bucks off your first bill. No strings attached. Also wanted to give a big shout out this morning to, uh, I mean, hey, listen, we're coming up. You know, we're talking about rural communities today. We're talking about rural politics. Rural communities make the most out of less affordable housing and homelessness are big issues that we're trying to solve in Canada's big cities. Have you ever wondered what the solutions look like in rural Canada? On June 1st to 3rd, you can connect with mentors, collaborators, funders, and new ways of doing at this year's Canadian Rural and Remote Housing and Homelessness Symposium. You've still got some time to register and keep in mind you're going to get 20% off your tickets when you use the code RYAN at CRRHH.ca, that's crrh And I'm so thrilled. I've been waiting to say this for weeks. You've seen me slyly sipping from this Real Talk mug, keeping it real since 2020. Our inaugural merch run has arrived, our e-commerce site is up, and our Patreon supporters right now as of 8 o'clock this morning, have a 48-hour head start on everybody else when it comes to procuring, securing, real-talk tees, real-talk mugs, and real-talk snapback caps. I'm so excited about the caps. You know, you put a ball cap on and it just fits. Oh, yeah. It's a great hat. It's a great lid. Thanks to our Patreon supporters. We appreciate you. You can learn more about that at RyanJesperson.com. Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, our shop will be wide open let's get into this uh we're going to be talking and you uh real talkers will be directing a lot of the conversation today about the ethics of of food and meat and plant production and almond milk and nutrition and poverty and everything that goes along with it sport versus hunting for meat hell yeah Uh, It's a pleasure to welcome to the program uh, an animal advocate, and and she and I have spoken before, and and I know that she's going to challenge us, and she's going to inspire us, and and she will probably anger some of you, and some of you will be cheering her from your living rooms. She's the host of the Paw and Order podcast. You've seen her work in the Globe and Mail, the Toronto Star, and of course, Puffin News, Jessica Scott-Reed. Welcome to the show, Jessica. It's great to have you here.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this.
0: You bet. Uh, Have you ever met
1: Jeff Singer before? I haven't, but I'm looking forward to chatting.
0: Yeah, Jeff's a Jeff's a good friend. Uh, we go way back. Jeff, you and I have spoken on the radio several times. You've got a fascinating story that I can't wait for people to hear. Uh, you completed your bachelor's degrees in science and commerce at the U of A. You went on to a career in, in corporate accounting. And then about 15 years ago, you decided just to blow it all up and you're now the owner operator at sangudo custom meats Uh, you have one of the most haunting instagram profiles i've ever seen and i can't help myself but check it every single day because you force me to better educate myself about the ethics and the issues around what you do welcome to real talk pal what does it mean for you to be here today how are you approaching this assignment none of us know where these conversations are going to go jeff I think we got you on mute, pal. We'll get you. We'll get you off mute real quick. Whether it's us or you, take a quick look. Why don't we give it a second try here?
4: There we go. There Sorry you go, about buddy. That. We can hear you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was really surprised the little the, the little amount of prepping that we uh, you know we're just coming in uh, completely unprepared. So I'm I'm just ready ready to talk. Didn't know for sure uh, who the other panelists would be, but. Um, um, I'm excited to be here and, and sh- sort of share my story and my, my philosophy here.
0: Let me, let me tell you what we wanted. The, the lack of prep is on purpose. It's intentional. We didn't want to script out this conversation. We want it to swerve all over the place, and, and we invite our guests to speak freely. Jessica, as an animal advocate, I mean, where does that start with you? Were, were, were you the little girl that was like finding the nest of, of, of hatchlings that had been abandoned by their mom and putting them under heat lamps? I mean, have you been this way your whole life?
1: Yeah, I'm still that girl. Uh, I was definitely, uh, you know, fighting to free Willy when I was a child. I was trying to save the planet as a child. I, you know, I grew up in the 90s. So that's kind of just intrinsic of who we are. Um, And now I've I've developed into this uh, full time journalist for the animals is what I call myself. And I think uh, the conversations around food ethics and our um, use of animals in society has just been growing in the last few years. So the timing has been good and editors have been very receptive to these conversations in national newspapers here in Canada. And um, I think it'll just keep going now that we're talking about climate change. We're talking about zoonotic diseases. Uh, These conversations are only going to grow from here on out.
0: Jeff, why why do we why do we set the scene here so people can understand your background? How how does a guy that's um you know got a successful career in corporate accounting uh, all of a sudden decide to move out to a hundred and sixty acre mixed farm, uh, way outside of the city and and uh, you didn't open a slaughterhouse but you, but you took it over right an abattoir? How how did that come about?
4: Uh, I was that same kid, um, the, the same kid as as Jessica here, uh, taking birds home and stray cats growing up in Edmonton uh, no background in farming and that sort of thing. But, um, for us, uh, the, the, the pivot moment was when my wife and I had a kid in Calgary, uh, working in corporate Calgary and oil and gas. And we decided that wasn't the right place for us. It didn't fit with our, it didn't align with our values and ethics to raise a kid in a city. Uh, so we had benefited by this, this sort of real estate boom that was going on in Alberta at the time. We were hundred thousand heirs because we happened to own property in Calgary for the, the right, the right period of time. And I said, Hey, uh, uh, at, I was we were twenty six at the time I said uh, believe it or not, we could afford to buy some land and and become uh, more involved in our own food production uh, in in either a very poor third world country or uh, rural Alberta had you ever
0: uh, I, I mean did you grow up hunting or I guess the, the, the very straight and plain question I want to ask you is like, when was the first time that do you use the word killed? Like, I guess let's, it's called real talk to show. When was the first time you, you killed an animal, so to speak? I mean, when was the first time you, you'll probably say processed, right? I mean, did you have a background in oh, this? No. Or was this all brand new to you as a, as a grown man?
4: Uh, no. Uh, so we lived on North side Edmonton. My dad was weird because his family grew up in the country and they had grown up hunting. So for a week or two per year, uh, from when I was old enough to walk, we would go to nature uh, for a week or two in the fall and look for birds and moose, mostly moose hunting. Uh, I was fascinated from when I was little. Uh, I was the only son or the only child of the the, the older group of hunters, my dad's buddies that would uh, stick stick it out and, and cut meat with the old men uh, in in the garage and and I think that that sort of built the foundation for me understanding uh uh, the value of being able to go out and collect, uh, collect food for yourself and then be involved in the, in the, in the whole process from start to finish. So values began in, in that, in that shallow, the shallow dip of hunting and being exploring nature. And then that uh, built me into this person who wanted to, uh, to go a bit further and be involved with animal production, uh, by buying this quarter section farm. And, and so we've been on this quarter section for 17 years now. And, uh, After and we originally we started with the gateway livestock, which was which we're laying hens, and we learned about uh, what makes their lives quality and what makes a quality egg, Uh, and then we just kept getting deeper and deeper. So we've grown all manner of livestock on this uh, messy mixed farm, Uh, and then after I don't know seven years on the farm, uh, an opportunity came up to buy the local abattoir, and I thought what better way to. Uh, you know, be a steward of, of the unpleasantness that we were seeing in the uh, federal commodified food systems uh, than to insert myself directly into a place where animals are, pros- are killed and processed for the meat eaters in our society that want to eat a higher quality meat or that have mind uh, that there be better You know, the better quality of uh, available uh, and and better quality in the way that the animals are raised.
0: I know that ethics are a big part of your thought process because you you, you let your thought process stream and flow on your Instagram. uh, And we'll talk about that in a bit. Jessica, when you talk about the ethics of food production and when you talk about people eating meat, is it a difficult conversation for you to have with, with, with somebody that runs an abattoir? Is there room for you? Is there nuance here? I mean, do, do you have friends that would serve steaks in front of you? Where, where do you land in a conversation like this? How do you approach it?
1: It's definitely not a difficult conversation because it's basically what I do all day, every day to have these conversations. A lot of my friends, you know, eat meat, uh, aren't vegan. Uh, and I'm always up for having these types of conversations because we live in a predominantly omnivorous uh, society, right? There's no way that uh, I'm surrounding myself with only people who believe in the same things I do. Uh, there is nuance and everybody has to kind of be met where they are. Uh, what changed for me was uh, being sort of educated, and enlightened to the fact that we don't actually have to eat animals. Uh, So if we don't have to, then why are we continuing to um, kill and cause suffering by choice? If eating animals is a choice, then why are we choosing to do that? Um, A a quote I like to sort of live by, and I I often tell people in these conversations is, uh, in an age of available alternatives, what was once a necessary evil just becomes evil Uh, and it was that was really a light bulb moment for me is realizing I didn't have to continue doing this and so why would I
0: so would you go on the record and and, and do you believe that eating meat or, or killing animals for meat is evil
1: I, it definitely, there's some nuance to it, uh, you can't say, I would, I'm not one that advocates for global veganism, uh, everybody's living in very different circumstances, I would say that for the majority of us in the Western world, uh, going vegan is accessible, eating a plant-based diet is accessible, and in fact, in, environmental scientists are sort of begging us to do this, uh, and so those who can should, for a variety of reasons. I, I definitely wouldn't call it evil, but I, I'd say it's probably uh, necessary in a lot of places.
0: Jeff you um, and I just I, I, I mean pictures are worth a thousand words uh, um, Sarah and Sam have a bunch of images locked and loaded we can show what your Instagram looks like but you've, you've, you've got a real eye aesthetically let me say some of the images will be troubling for some people to see I will acknowledge that they're 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 captured on a slaughterhouse floor uh, but 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 images of, of, of you know your, your blade uh, what's this that we're seeing
4: here Jeff what's in this trailer here that's just one of the many disasters uh, on the farming and ranching business, and that's that would be waste. That's a trailer full of guts. And so, in dealing with the reality of processing meat, um, me and my family have to have to manage all aspects of it. So, uh, currently this morning, for example, we're feeding a bottle-fed calf from a, a hundred-head cow-calf operation. that didn't. It failed to thrive. This calf got stepped on by its mother. Um, so. Uh, we raise the animals as friends and pets. We name them. We love them. Uh, we hug and kiss them. And and we were the we were the young people that had uh, Saint Bernard dogs uh, sleeping in our beds, and then sort of expanded into understanding livestock and the, the sort of the purpose of these animals and and the fact that that that, that we, yeah that that uh, as as Jessica said we're we're living in an omnivorous society so there are folks that are going to eat meat no matter what so what can we do uh, to what can we do to serve that need in a better way that fits ethically and morally with our understanding and our, and, and our values and sort of uh, if we can put uh, a very very small dent in commo- in the commodification of life uh, by by respecting it, learning it respecting it and going to the school of food production and then doing it in in, in the right way I think that uh, it's certainly not evil it, it's um, it's part of human I mean it's it's part of human history uh, and and there's a differing science in 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 that because we manage a farm and grow animals and then also uh, they have one bad day when they come to work with me they have quite a great life here on the farm uh, then they have one one bad day but observing and inserting yourself into nature I would encourage uh, others to do because there, there's there's one thing that cows can do environmentally um, uh, and livestock like bunnies and, and goats and that's that they turn green material and 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 uh, grasses and Chlorophyll into soil, and I think that sequestering that carbon in soil on the farm is something that, especially in a northern climate, just doesn't happen fast enough. The natural cycles of grass growing and dying uh, doesn't build so- doesn't build soil the way that it does when it goes through the uh, gut of an of an herbivore. So, I think that almost in in our world uh, of observation, that uh, meat becomes a byproduct of our soil. Our team of soil builders that work with us to to leave the world better than than we found it.
0: Jessica, how has your I mean, how has the landscape changed through your eyes over the past? I don't know. What's your advocacy span? Twenty five years, 20 years, something like that. I mean, you talk about since you're a young woman, and, uh, you know, we're seeing trends and we'll get to some of these. We're going to be joined by other guests, uh, including in just a couple of minutes. Um, we'll talk about everything from almond milk and, and, and the amount of water that it takes to, to clear cutting, you know, Brazilian rainforest to grow. I mean, like we can get into a whole bunch of stuff. Um, it it strikes me that with the, uh, onset of, of many different plant proteins in different forms, I think beyond meat is a classic example that, that people are probably phasing either other carnivores like myself, who I, I, I would find it difficult to quit prime rib, quite frankly, with, with horseradish and sauteed mushrooms, I would find it very difficult to walk away from that entirely, but I'm wide open to the idea of eating less meat, that's one example out of a million, How has it changed through your eyes, the public perspective?
1: Yeah, we've seen a major uh, boost in not only the production of plant-based proteins, um, plant-based meat alternatives, but also just in pop culture, the amount of people talking about and considering veganism or flexitarianism or just uh, incorporating more plant proteins. We look at the new Canada Food Guide, uh, the latest Canada Food Guide that focused much more on plant proteins, removing uh, dairy as its own food group. Uh, There's been a huge jump, I'd say, in the last five years. A lot of this has to do with uh, ethics. A lot of people caring more about animals, thanks in great part to activists and undercover investigators being able to use smartphones and showing things on social media that have so long been hidden from public view. Uh, There's also the concern about climate change. And like I mentioned now, uh, zoonotic diseases coming from intensive factory farming being a concern. And health concerns, a lot has come out about uh, red meat and correlations to diabetes risk, cancer risk, uh, obesity and death. So there's a a lot of issues at hand now that are facing meat eating in Canada and North America and beyond. And I'd say in the last five years since I've been writing about these issues for the media, um, I can't even keep up. The interest in these issues and the concerns about animals and the environment and meat production uh, are only growing
0: jeff i i read from an instagram post of yours on the show last week in in um teeing up this episode and it was the one about the crippled calf you know this one um i won't That's read the guy, yeah yeah i mean i won't read the whole thing but but wow well, i feel weird reading your post Um uh, you, you just this this calf puts you into a bit of a wind wobble and you 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 poured it out and and you started talking about societal perspectives and urban versus rural and can you explain to us what it was about this little calf that so resonated with you?
4: Well, I think that uh, I mean I, I think that's really great uh, that there are folks in society that are researching the issues, writing about the issues, and 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 participating in the conversation academically or technically. Uh, and I, I love that. I think it's important. It's part of the evolution of our society as a whole. Uh, to get away from the commodification of living things, be it plants or animals, uh, to get away from the commodification of farm labor, uh, be it uh, exploited, poorly paid workers with no benefits, uh, or and the destruction of ecosystems in the land. Uh, so, so these are all steps along the way, and then. Uh, for for whatever reason, I mean, an ethics-based reason was a young when I was a younger man. I inserted myself and my family into the front lines of the of the fight to learn, uh, you know, really what's happening, and and to put myself. Um, and, and my ethics and morality to the test on the table with what what would you do, uh, Ryan, if you went to your 84-year-old neighbor's uh, cow-calf operation? He's a single man. Uh, this is a picture of Alberta, rural Alberta. Uh, he's a single man living by himself, uh, raising 100 cow-calf pairs. Uh, calving out a hundred head by himself on his farm, running his tractor. He's just our, our neighbor to the north. And and uh, we, we, uh, we brought our steers over there to do some veterinary work on them. Uh, and he said, come with me into one of my sheds. I've got a calf that isn't doing well. And could you please put a bullet in this thing's head? Um, and so, uh, I had my four daughters that help, help at the meat shop, uh, with me. And I said, well, the, none of us will stand for this. Of course, we'll take this calf home, uh, and make him a pet. So that's Jean Relfio. Jean Relfio actually, he, it didn't look good for Jean Relfio. He, uh. He was stepped on the neck and his vertebrae, is, his his, uh, his sixth vertebrae, and he was paralyzed in the front legs. Uh, so this is a creature that was going to take uh, physiotherapy to get back going. And it, it took the love of our family and my, my daughters uh, feeding him six times a day and doing physiotherapy with his limbs to bring him back. Now, in a hundred uh, head cow-calf operation, it's normal for one to 2% of the animals to be born invalid or have some sort of problem. Uh, I don't think that that's well... Uh, Uh, what do you say that story is uh, these stories go untold so in the commodification of meat this 84 year old man is struggling to make a hundred bucks uh per head when his when his calves uh, go to auction and uh and this is just uh some number of calves just just like some pig and charlotte's web some humble uh uh calf that isn't going to make it that would have been shot in the head because the average age of our farmers aren't uh, you know, there were, we're not renewing our farm labor at at a rate that would uh, that would allow uh, care to be done at the level that that that, that the ethical writers in academia uh, academia would like. I I believe that I would be vegan if I couldn't run a farm and my own slaughterhouse. If I didn't pull the trigger, I have a have a hard time with hiring that work out. I think it's too intimate and too too important. Uh, a job to just hire out to someone subordinate to you and 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 sort of govern myself with the lowest price is the law. That might be okay for a headset or a, a stereo, but for me, it's not okay to to hire that work out for living things. Because this is what, this, this sort of destruction and these sorts of decisions are what's on the table, the front lines of farming and ranching. And it's, it's kind of not a pretty place to live. It's not an easy place to live, but uh, it's where we've chosen to live uh, to make a bigger difference uh, then just say, uh, going, going vegan would mean that I eliminate a small handful of animals uh, from going through the process of, of growing up and, and then uh, going through a conventional food system. Uh, but by owning a slaughterhouse, even if I were to choose to buy it and shut it down, I would be, which we're, we're not doing, but, but I have then effect on the tens of thousands of animals that flow through us over the decade. Um that, that I've been involved in processing this meat. So Okay, uh, I want to give sorry.
0: no no, I want to give Jessica a chance to respond to that. That's Jeff Singer. We're talking to Jessica Scott Reed and in just a moment we're gonna introduce you to Naveen Raman of a professor out of the University of British Columbia. Right now I want to remind you that we uh, every single week are very proud to partner with the team at Alta Moving and Storage. They're family owned, they're local, and and just like you, hey, listen, they've got people that depend on them. All right, and a big part of that when it comes to the move is being able to to depend on the team you're moving with. I had a an audience member send me an email just the other day asking for the contact information of Alta moving and storage. They said, we'll never forget our last experience. It was a nightmare. They said the mover showed up at 10 in the morning. We had to be out of the house by noon. We had two hours to get this place all gone. It was a whirlwind. They ended up getting into their new place at midnight. I was reading this going, oh man. Alta Moving and Storage, they find local solutions that work for you, including these pod-style moving containers. They drop them off at your house. At your leisure, you fill them up. They transport it to your new place at your leisure. You unload it, and then they'll get it out of your way. Plus, long and short-term storage solutions at Alta Moving & Storage. You can find them online at altastorage.ca. Make sure you tell them you heard about them on Real Talk. Also, a big shout-out to the team at Eden Landscaping. Sarah Hoyles, the recipient of a fabulous welcome gift from our partners at family-owned Eden Landscaping. Sherry the Cherry Tree. Everybody has a very vested interest in Sherry. Have you noticed we're getting more emails about Sherry than I think anything else?
3: I'm getting a lot of emails concerned about Sherry's well-being, making sure that she's getting light. And although it looks like our studio is uh, not yeah. got a lot of natural light, there are actually massive windows. I'm going to take a photo today yeah. and share it via Twitter just so people can see. Well, I, I think I...
0: I, I, I know, love that. I, I don't love know the that concern. we need to post photos. I think that we can just remind people that we are all aware that trees do need light to survive. We really appreciate all your informative emails letting us know that trees do need light and water. Guess what? We're going to water her, too. And ultimately, you'll find a beautiful home for her, a more permanent home. Yeah, she's coming to my yard. Love it. That's what Eden Landscaping does. So you've been staring at your yard all winter, all spring, being like, this is the last summer I'm going to have with this lousy setup. Now's the time to get in touch with them at landscapeedmonton.ca. See how they can turn your dream into reality. We're having conversations about, right now, food production, meat trends proteins poverty sustainability we're going to talk about hunting later in the show jessica scott reed and jeff singer have been hanging out with us for a while and it's a real pleasure to welcome a renowned professor out of university of british columbia's land use and global environment lab he's a canada research chair in global environmental change and food security at ubc uh navin Ramankuddy, welcome to real talk and thank you so much for making time for us did i do okay i want to make sure i pronounce your name correctly did i do okay there Yes,
5: indeed. Oh, Thanks, Ryan, for thank having me.
0: you. Thank you. We're grateful to add your voice to this. And, and I really want to encourage our panelists here to feel free to interact with one another. Um, we realize we're coming at this with a very broad focus, professor. And so when you approach a conversation in front of members of the public and fellow panelists, and we're talking about the ethics around food production, trends and sustainability, where does your trained mind go? How do you approach a conversation like this?
5: Yeah, uh, people enter the food system from many different perspectives. Uh, they enter it from the perspectives of uh, livelihoods, from the point of view of nutrition, health, and so on. And I enter it from the perspective of environment. So when I think about food, I think about environment. And one of the realities is that the way we grow our food and the way we eat um, has huge impacts on the environment. Um, it contributes to climate change. It contributes to uh, uh, loss of other species uh, due to our deforestation and changing landscapes. Um, agriculture is the biggest user of uh, water on this planet. um, and agriculture is the biggest polluter of fresh water on this planet. Um, so the lens that I take uh, in thinking about these issues is uh, is figuring out how we can make our agriculture more sustainable. Um, clearly, we need food, um, and clearly, There are more there are going to be more people on this planet in the future. So it's important to keep producing food, but we need to produce it in a way that's less harmful to the environment.
0: Let's take our conversation there, because I know all three of you can chime in on this. Uh, Jessica, you've got a great piece. You you published it a couple of months ago, back in March at PlanetFriendlyNews.com. How to start eating for the planet. How do you start?
1: Uh, I think just like um, our former speaker was saying that looking at the impact of the foods that you choose to eat is important. Um, We look at, you know, comparing different types of proteins, different types of nutrient dense foods. Uh, and here in Canada, we have such an abundance of plant-based protein foods, right? We're one of the greatest producers of pulses. Uh, and so if you wanna look at uh, uh, cutting your carbon footprint, cutting your uh, water footprint, uh, cutting down on the amount of land that's needed and water that's needed to produce the foods that you eat, uh, it's abundantly clear that plant-based foods and plant-based proteins are the way to go. if you If you really wanna make that that cuts on your impact on the planet
0: so jeff y- you talked a bit about this i mean if if, if someone were to ask you how, how are you and you've addressed this a little bit already but but how are you exemplifying or how are you living out sustainability in your operations? brian
4: just in Sorry, Ryan, I didn't mean to interrupt. I'm really passionate, had a lot of coffee, but insert (laughs) yourself into that environment. God damn it. Get yourself onto the land, right? And it's like, I'm not directing it. I'm not angry. I'm really happy. Um, I think that the next evolution, uh, particularly spurred on, let's say by COVID, by this exact technology that we're talking on immediately right now. Uh, means that I can work from home. My wife's a teacher. She's working from home. Uh, we don't have to engage in the sort of uh, sociopathic tendencies of leaving a heated box at home in the suburbs and driving into a corporate office tower that's another heated box that's empty for the 12 hours while you're at home. <laughs> um, we can, and, and I, I swear to you that the evolution of the vegan will be people returning to uh, quarter sections, uh, to living on the farm, interacting with nature at, at at the, at the place, at the exact uh, uh, the moment where the sun uh, changes to grass on the ground and the grass is consumed by a wild animal. Uh, I think that when you're, because we've been robbed of that as a society uh, through corporate consumerism, uh, it, there was no place for society to go but into a dysfunctional tailspin. Uh, however, uh, when more people are exposed to uh, the, the, the the rhythm and the poetry that's uh, available uh, when you're more in touch with nature, uh, you're going to protect that, which you love. Uh, if, if, if your exposure to your physical body and the physical world is literally renting time on someone else's uh, 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 I noticed you were swearing earlier and I almost did there, but if, if you're renting time on someone's treadmill at a gym and that's your interaction with your physical body, you're missing out. Uh, we feel through, through the soles of our shoes or through our bare feet, um, the undulations of the land here, and our friends with our horses that we ride, and when you take—I'm uh, just channeling my inner Wendell Berry, really. Uh, but when when you take the time to slow down and and participate in nature, I think that's the the highest evolution uh, to become an advocate or a high priest of the responsibilities that we have as members of the food chain, and 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 then you can use that to direct what it is that you put in your in your mouth uh, from from day to day.
0: I can't be the only person that just googled Wendell Berry. Um, an American novelist, poet, essayist, environmental activist, cultural critic, and farmer. Uh, Professor Raman Cuddy. We're, we're getting so many comments um, either emailed into us. I'm seeing them on Twitter. I'm seeing them on our live chat. People are talking about, the, as soon as I said beyond meat, or, or as soon as, as as Jess sort of alludes to the fact that that societal trends or, or perceptions of, of ethical production are, are changing and have changed, um, we start to invoke things like, Uh, Beyond meat or almond milk or oat milk and and people will talk about the cost of some of this We see aerial images gut-wrenching images quite frankly i'm speaking personally of amazon rainforest Hectares and hectares just burned and leveled and destroyed ecosystems Demolished to make way for agricultural production dramatic, maybe accurate. I think so How do you evaluate where some of these trends are going is something like almond milk that gets some people off dairy? A positive mood or move or is it lose lose or how do you sort through this stuff
5: yeah i mean i think there are lots of different experiments going on trying to get people to eat less meat but uh, my own take on it is that ultimately we need to be eating a little less meat um, and it's actually good for the planet and good for our own health um, so if you look at recommendations for and and i should say that this th- there's huge disparities on how much meat is consumed in different parts of the world. Um, I grew up in India um, and as a young kid, uh, we ate meat. I'm not vegetarian, I'm not vegan. um, I never have been, I didn't grow up vegetarian or vegan. Uh, But when we ate meat at home, when I was a kid, we did that on special occasions. When we had a guest visiting, when it was someone's birthday, there was some special festival, it was a treat. It wasn't something we ate every day or even every meal. When you look at consumption patterns around the world, in in the rich countries, uh, we eat twice as much uh, animal-based protein um, as is recommended, or twice as much protein in total as is recommended. Uh, So the recommendation from the World Health Organization is that we eat about 40 grams per person per day. On average, most people eat about 80 grams per person per day. Uh, We can get most of the protein that we need for our health uh, just from eating plant-based foods. Having said that, you know, meat is a huge part of different people's cultures. Uh, if you've been to Latin America, you know, it's a huge part of their culture, and it's hard for people to give up eating meat. Um, so I always focus on quantity and not completely giving it up. Um, I I think if we all ate a little less meat every once in a while, maybe give it up for two days a week, or uh, take you know, take Sabbath on weekends. Um, I think it can make a difference. Um, So all of these, you know, Beyond Burger, uh, uh, Impossible Burger and other kinds of solutions um, are helping people make these choices uh, easier. That's my take on it.
0: Jessica, I think back when, when, when we hear someone, uh, you know, like Professor Ramakhani, for example, saying, you know, people like he eats meat, but people could stand to eat a little bit less meat. It's, it's hardly a, a, the first time that anybody's said that. And I, I think it's hardly shocking. I, I don't think it's a groundbreaking comment. But I look back and of course, you know, we say that this show talks about news politics and pop culture. And when I when I look back on some of the more prominent voices that have spoken out about things like the ethics of meat, who could ignore famed canadian country singer folk legend katie lang uh in the 1980s or early 1990s absolutely a pariah type treatment uh from her fellow albertans after she dared to take on big meat in personal comments that she made there's a real i mean this is bigger than the meat itself for a lot of people i mean we talk about alberta beef and how proud this jurisdiction is in this province or even canadian beef for that matter canadian milk you know talk about canadian ag there's there's like a nationalist type of 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 pride that comes with it how much of our identity do you believe is is tied to what we eat
1: There's such a cultural connection. And when you bring up the Katie Lang, I can't help but think of another Alberta icon who today has become a massive animal activist and vegan, who is Jan Arden. Uh, She spearheaded the the move against uh, the live export of horses to Japan for sashimi here in Canada, and and as a result has gone vegan. Um, It's a huge part of our culture. It's a huge part of our traditions. I grew up eating meat. I'm a meat and potatoes girl from Manitoba. Um, I know what it's like to have a turkey at Thanksgiving, but things can change, you know. Now we are making new traditions, we're having, we're making new culture, cultural references with our food, uh, and I think it's just because things evolve over time, our knowledge about animal sentience and suffering can change over time, our concern about climate change can change over time, and I think culture and traditions can also evolve, uh, and as much as we want to connect meat eating with Canadian culture, there's a lot of things that were once connected to Canadian culture that we probably don't want to connect with it anymore. Uh, And once we start seeing things for what they really are and factory farming of meat here in Canada is not something any of us should be proud of.
0: Jeff, do you think that people will still be eating meat in a hundred
4: years um, that's funny. That's a huge philosophical. That's a campfire whiskey kind of conversation. Yeah, I buddy. wonder if there will be people to be eating in 100 years, to be quite honest. We'll be eating people in 100 years, Ryan, you if go. you follow certain uh, certain thought traits. Uh, that's
0: that's a campfire after 14 whiskeys type of conversation, <laughs> Jeff. Yeah. But
4: Yeah. Uh, I, I, yeah, I think these uh, the, the other guests are talking exactly where we're completely aligned. We don't need to be fighting amongst ourselves. We need to be looking at how to change the paradigm. Uh, the problem that we have isn't with unethical farmers or unethical ranchers or unethical slaughterhouse technicians. Human beings at the human level have ethics, believe in sustainability, and they don't want to roast the world. But I think that when, as a society, we decide to organize organize ourselves around a profit-seeking corporation, you don't have to go very deep in the reading to understand that profit is the priority for all of the major companies that control the lives of both animals and spinach. Uh, And so if if we're obsessed about seeking profit uh, and we can download all of those externalities to other, other countries and send our profit to multinationals. Uh, then th- th- that's, that's what creates problems here. Uh, like at, at the front lines on the ranch, it's the commodification of food in, this, in the pursuit of endless profit uh, and endless growth that cre- create problems. So what we're trying, trying to do here with our little business and our little farm is reconnect a few handfuls of families to uh, the land and the communities that produce the food uh, so that you, you, Ryan, could come out to the farm and, and, and you, could, you could look at the way that we raise the animals and you, and you could weigh in on that discussion. Uh, I think that the the commodified industry of food production, including uh, vegetables, almond milk, and and the way that that those sorts of industries can destroy land, land communities and families, um, are kind of breezed over. And they're really good at spending money to build higher walls to avoid consumers. And I feel dirty calling human beings fellow fellow citizens consumers, but uh, this is the language that we're given. Um, they, they just build bigger walls so that people can't peek in and see how that food, food production is actually happening. And if you did, in all—I mean, any any place, any wall that I peered over was appalling. Uh, even like in almond milk, and you think, well, if, if your if your main goal is, is that uh, we, you know, as a society, we decided to give corporations personhood, so there's no, there's a lack of accountability, there's a lack of uh, con- connection to the communities in uh, where that food is produced. Uh, if I could cut down a, a native forest in California and plant almond trees, I'm going to do that because I can make more dollars uh, per acre. Uh, but by, by growing those almonds uh, for for a group of folks uh, that are following a, a food trend at the moment, uh, how how I don't know. I, I I listen to a lot of weird stuff, and I think that co- cooperatives is is one part of my life that's been important. That when we. Uh, share share the ownership, and we kind of kind of hold hands in the understanding of how how the land and how the assets are going to produce the uh, the sorts of effects that we want, like for example nu- nutrition and an environmental improvement instead of environmental degradation. Um, we have to unteach those consumers that the lowest price shouldn't be uh, the, the the number one priority in their lives. Eating less meat and spending a little bit more, or eating almond milk from a local producer uh, where you get to go and touch the trees and, and understand the management practices that puts that almond milk into a, a carton, I think that's way more important than hyper-consuming and uh, saving on on your food budget in order to buy your, your effing uh, Mercedes or, or your your Prada handbag. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Or as you got <laughs> on somebody earlier, uh, their Peloton, right? So I, I want to give Jessica and, and, and Professor Ramakadi both an opportunity to respond to this because you've touched on a couple of important things. Number one, consumer education. And and number two, I mean, we, ha- we could spend another hour and a half talking about, poverty uh professor you t- i mean you talked about india for example as a culture i'm so glad that you invoked another culture to to talk about the the approach to meat or hospitality or entertaining the significance of certain proteins how would you evaluate and and let's not say globally because it'd be a difficult exercise but but right now let's say your fellow canadians how, how would you evaluate the average consumer's education around what they're eating. I mean, I think we like to pat ourselves on the back and say we're shopping local more frequently. We like to, you know, the, the farm-to-fork movement, and we all like to know where our eggs come from. But a lot of it's, let's be honest, self-congratulatory, people posting on their Instagram, very proud of themselves because they went to a farmer's market. How would you evaluate the average consumer's education on what they eat?
5: I, I would like to go back to something Jessica said because I think it's It's changing. Um, And that's incredible. I I think people are realizing as as they learn, um, I think they're realizing that, uh, you know, some of the beliefs you had before is not true anymore. So uh, I myself was uh, vegan and vegetarian for about, well, I wasn't vegan. I was vegetarian for about 10 years. um, And it came from reading uh, a book book on animal ethics by Peter Singer. I'm sure Jess knows that. Um, And I was kind of disgusted by the idea of factory farming, and I became vegetarian. And then at some point, I started um, hearing and learning more about local foods and the advantage of eating locally. And so I started eating more locally. And also at that time, I was traveling a lot in Europe um, uh, for scientific conferences, and it was really hard to find vegetarian food in certain circumstances. So I started eating meat again, but tried to eat it more locally. But now I believe that uh, even that wasn't true. I think eating Local foods is, is beneficial, but it's not enough that we actually do need to reduce our meat consumption. So now, now I'm trying to change back. I'll give you another example. My, my daughter um, uh, I have two daughters who are in school, and um, one year the um, kids uh, grew salmon, they grew salmon in their classrooms, and that at the end of the year, they went out and released the salmon into the ocean. After that, she stopped eating salmon. She refuses to eat salmon now because she's worried that the salmon she released, it's that salmon's great grandfather or great grandma that we are gonna be eating, right? Um, So, you know, kids do learn um, and uh, they change their practices because of that. So I think, yes, there is, you know, there are cultural issues, uh, but those things can change. And as Jessica said, we can create new cultures. So I'm hopeful from that perspective. Um, I also wanted to touch on something that Jeff said earlier, which is uh, that I wholeheartedly agree with Jeff that this is an issue of, it's a structural problem. It's the way we have organized societies uh, that's part of this problem. We can't blame people for this. Um, And so part of the reason we are having arguments about this is that people are feeling attacked. Um, The ranchers in Alberta are feeling attacked uh, based on people like me talking about the environmental problems. But I'm not really blaming people. I'm not blaming individuals and their choices. We all make individual choices that are not good for the environment. So we need to blame governments for for not doing the right thing. So we need public policy. This is a public good problem. It's not an individual problem. And we need governments to help us.
0: Before I go to Jess, uh, what do you mean by that? Where do you think government should step in? What what sort of policy should be imposed here?
5: I mean, let's take the climate change problem, right? Um, The policies that we need for climate change include, you know, more sustainable transportation, more renewable energy, and so on. Similarly, in the case of meat production, uh, livestock consumption, we need uh, more education to help people understand that you know they are eating unhealthily. Well, we maybe need some people have talked about meat taxes, although I know that will create a lot of uh, resistance. Uh, but we need to have policies to you know change the way we grow our food as well. Um, I mean, it's not just about meat consumption. We have focused a lot on meat consumption, but we also have climate change problems resulting from excess fertilizer use on our on our agricultural fields causing nitrous oxide emissions, which is a greenhouse gas. So policies to help farmers apply, not apply too much fertilizer can be beneficial policies to help farmers diversify agriculture on their fields by, um, you know, you, growing different kinds of crops to have more cover crops and so on can be helpful as well.
0: We uh, on our live chat, this is I mean, it's just going nuts, as you might imagine, um (laughs) lisa corbett just hit caps lock and she just says i love this panel uh meantime some random guy says i think ryan just called half his audience out with his farmer's market quip incorrect i called the entire audience out myself included that's the whole point of this whole freaking show to call out every single one of us and to make us think about these things jessica i don't even have a question for you i feel like you've been sitting there with so many things to respond to i just want to (laughs) hand you the microphone take it over (laughs)
1: <laughs> There's so much going on here. I'm, I'm just like your audience right now. Um, I, I think a point I really want to make right now is, you know, when we're talking to someone like Jeff, who's obviously very passionate about what he's doing and, and feeling a very certain way about his approach to stewardship of land and animals. Um, I commend somebody who cares for animals in a way that I kind of think is a little bit backwards, thinking you're doing them a service by killing them, Um That aside, the unfortunate part is, is that consumers at large, like we're talking about people who go to farmers markets and feel very good about buying free range eggs, is that Jeff's type of approach and narrative uh, and the way that he's presenting it um, to the public is very much uh, invoked, utilized, exploited by consumers at large who like to tell themselves that this is the type of animal products that they're eating and that they're buying. Uh, And so if you go to the grocery store first, if you're going to the grocery store, that's one thing right there. If you're if you think you're buying, you know, free range meat, grass fed beef, um, these things are such marketing terms that unfortunately stories of wholesome, bucolic, uh, pasture raised animals being told by, you know, good meaning people like Jeff um, are are used in terrible ways by both marketing of lobby groups from, you know, big pork, big beef, big egg, uh, in these commercials that show settings that probably look familiar to Jeff, but actually don't depict the general industry at all. If people want to eat the way Jeff is producing food, we need to talk about a massive reduction in the amount of consumption of animal products that's currently going on right now. And unfortunately, especially in the grass fed beef, um, narrative, the regenerative agricultural narrative, where we're trying to talk about cows and other animals being beneficial, livestock animals being beneficial to the environment, Uh, we really have to talk about a reduction, massive reduction. Environmental scientists tell us that in North America, we should be reducing our beef consumption by 90% and other animal products by 50 to 60%. And people think they might be doing that, but we are nowhere close uh, to, to cutting our beef and animal product consumption to meet within environmental limits and people think they are
0: um, one of you has the loudest keyboard ever sold in human history FYI um, <laughs> Jeff <laughs> I want to give you a chance to respond to what Jessica's just said obviously uh, she, she, she described your approach uh, to what you do is a little bit backward and then she had more to say from there how do you respond.
4: Um, absolutely. I uh, like I, I mirror her sentiment that we need to eat uh, a lot less of higher quality uh, proteins and the proteins need to be a smaller mix of our overall diet. Uh, but that's not to say that uh, a 10 quarter section lentil farm is a pretty place to visit and, and nor is it doing any uh, environmental stewardship favors uh, if we had 10 quarter sections that are all, all farmed in southern Alberta uh, farming peas or lentils. Uh, anyway, um, I have a quote because there are way smarter people in the world than me. Um, Those who are profiting grotesquely right now from neg- from negatively affecting our connections to our local communities and harming the earth will not be the ones to save it. But neither will an oppressed, divided and alienated people. Um, this is from, from a little website. Uh, that, that speaks about the dominant narratives around food called PinkSkyCollective.com. I encourage you to zip over there and read some well-written words along with my my homeboy Wendell Berry. Uh, these these quotes and uh, are written by people that have been in touch with uh, with farm and food production, and they know that something systemic has to change. Um, for I like I think that the conversation and to go back to a point that you made earlier, the conversation in a hundred years. Uh, will be. I can't believe that hundred years ago, in 2021, uh, folks weren't using their backyards to grow uh, to grow a chicken, in order to understand the plight and the the personality of those chickens, and then make an, an informed decision about food production as to whether the carrots out of that garden or the eggs out of that chicken are better than the grocery store, or whether we should just outsource that work to uh, like a you know a mechanized institution who's who's seeking uh, uh, a profit above all all else.
0: I'm uh so grateful for this conversation. I know I, having at least I mean Naveen, this is our first time meeting, but I, but I, I feel like I've known Jessica. I feel like I've known Jeff a little bit. I didn't expect uh hand grenades. I didn't expect backstabbing. I uh, I think it's had the right amount of tension. I, I, I think you know, but but you've really all uh brought uh, through through very different perspectives uh, you know, I mean, different backgrounds, obviously uh, the right spirit to this conversation, which is wonderful. That's the whole point. Um, I want to give each of you a chance as, as we thank you for your time. And we're going to transition into talk now on hunting. Um, we're going to get into that in particular. But I want to give each of you a, a chance to, to wrap this up with a bow and to leave us with something to think about. Uh, and Jessica, I'm wondering if maybe you'd do us the honors first.
1: Sure, I have a bow for you. Um, When we talk about um, eating animals that were pasture raised or farmed locally or raised humanely or slaughtered nicely, uh, keep in mind that the animal doesn't care that it lived close to you. The animal didn't care that you stabbed it in the throat nicely. The animal cares about not being stabbed in the throat. And if you centralize uh, animals as sentient beings, just like you, me, your dog, your child, uh, you start to see that there's really no right way or ethical way to kill someone who doesn't want to die.
4: Jeff? Uh, I would say false. Uh, uh, My experience in being a uh, chronic murderer or a, uh, yeah, uh, uh, the animals don't anticipate their death. Uh, for one. and uh, the, the the treatment of animals can uh, is a spectrum. And a, a loved animal that has a great life for the three years that it's on this earth, and then is instantly ended without knowing what's going on. Uh, I wish I wish to have that sort of end myself rather than die the way that I watch uh, my grandparents and, and Jeff, parents. Jeff, do, let so. me let
0: me let me ask you for a second. I know we're wrapping and I know we've got our next panelists ready to go, but I've 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 heard stories and you can roll your eyes. Oh, you've heard stories. Have you, Ryan? I've also been at a slaughterhouse. I've witnessed it. I did a, a news report on it. I came back to the assignment desk and they told me they couldn't use any of my footage uh, on television. Um, I have seen it happen, but but I do know that people will say cattle absolutely know what's going on when they're getting loaded off that trailer pigs panic in particular I've heard people say pigs are very intelligent they panic when they put two and two together are you telling
4: me that's not accurate That that's not true that's correct yeah uh, when they're handled like shit uh, when an animal's only interaction with a human being was uh, when that human being was cutting off its uh, testicles without anesthetic, uh, then that animal gets panicked around people. Uh, if the animal has never seen sunlight before, uh, when the animal has never never been handled before, uh, they're nervous around people. Uh, and that happens when you're maximizing profit by growing throngs of animals shoulder to shoulders, say, in, in feed yards or in massively over- overpopulated barns, Uh, but animals that have been raised in a loving kindness sort of approach uh, they walk in, in a system that's designed, uh, our system is unusual, it's designed to an ethical standard, uh, but animals that walk through our system are have a casual, confused demeanor, and uh, they don't know what's happening, they know what's going on, and then they're instantly, uh, the, the goal is always for them to be instantly out, instantly desensitized, to make uh, that higher, I mean, a higher quality meat product. But I'm not thinking about profit as the owner of this slaughterhouse, I'm thinking about that mammal is very similar to my dog at home, the horse that I ride, or the little uh, calf that we have in the barn that I'm raising. Right. Uh, which is a weird conundrum that we're raising this thing to eventually kill in two years. But the best I can do to, for for these animals is give them uh, like a peaceful, quick, and painless as painless as possible. Yeah. Death. yeah. And
0: I've the- talked to I've talked to friends, uh, mutual friends of yours and mine, uh, even a, a good friend, dairy farmer Jeff None about about his kids' involvement with 4-H and and how kids wrap their minds around and process caring for an animal- naming an animal and then ultimately the animal is is slaughtered and maybe even consumed in the same home that raised the animal and i think that this also goes to uh, maybe it's a bit of a stereotype but i think it's is there such a thing as a complementary stereotype i think there can be that that farm kids or or kids raised rurally sometimes have a bit more depth of understanding about some things and able to process things a little bit differently. Maybe we can get into that. That might be a whole different show with three different psychologists. Uh, Professor Ramankati, let's, let's give last word to you. Give us, I know you can do this. I know you're up for it. It's what you do as Canada research chair. Give us something to chew on today.
5: Yeah. I'll say that whether we like it or not, whether we believe it or not, the science is clear that uh, the way we, grow our food and the way we eat our food is having massive impacts on the global environment. And so I think we all have a choice. Um, we all have a choice in uh, you know what we eat um, and uh, uh, we, we, we can make a difference. I think it, the science says that eating more plant-based foods, and this is not even thinking about the environment, eating more plant-based foods is better for your health. Um, the latest Canada food guide says that half your plate should be with filled with fruits and vegetables uh, most people don't do that um, so that's good for your health and it's also good for the planet but beyond our individual choices i think we also have to make choices uh, you know globally and uh, we need to call our politicians out when they make uh, bad policies uh, we need to think about who who we vote for who we want our governments uh, to be um, and so i think we need to make choices that that are both at home but also broadly
0: that is uh, Professor Naveen Ramankadi out of the University of British Columbia's uh, Land Use and Global Environment Lab. We've been joined by Jeff Sanger out of Sangudo Custom Meats and Jessica Scott Reed, uh, a longtime animal advocate, host of the Paw and Order podcast. A sincere, the most sincere thanks uh, to the three of you for delivering on a panel that's being absolutely celebrated on our live chat right now. We know this podcast is going to make the rounds in a big way. Thanks.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thanks,
4: Ryan.
0: Thank you to our nice audience to you, members. Here. Yeah. No, hey, what a guy I feel. I feel like it isn't it interesting where like, you know, I mean, Jessica and Jeff are coming at this from such different angles, yet they find a way to talk it out. Meet in the middle. It's it's what we do here is it's the bedrock upon which the show is built and the live chats a, a, along the same lines. I mean, Daniel says, what a panel. Just Wow. And then Daniel went on, by the way, to establish how his family farm has 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 gone in a different direction, he says, over the course of two generations. Now they're exclusively farming grains. Alyssa says, I recommend everybody visit a slaughterhouse to see where your meat comes from. It will change your perspective. Alyssa, I'd go even further, and I don't want to be a hypocrite on here, uh, you know, because I, I've said this for a lot of years, but I've not yet done it. I mean, aside from grouse, but. You know, I I believe that every single person that eats meat should participate in a hunt and ideally should harvest their own animal from start to finish. Hunting is going to be the the, the second half of this conversation. That's coming up in just a moment. I firmly believe that. I believe you should look at a magnificent animal. You should see it. and, and, And I believe you should you should walk the walk. If you want to see an elk tenderloin on your plate or if you love moose meat or whatever, I believe that you should harvest an animal at least once in your life i've not yet done it i mean aside from fish maybe that counts maybe that gets me off the hook no pun intended i don't know but i think that Alyssa's on to something as well i want us and i believe and i know you want to as well because i see what our audience interaction is like here we want to think more. we want to confront these uncomfortable conversations we want to force ourselves to think about what we buy and what we eat and why we buy it or maybe why we don't I'm reading through the live chat. Uh, Wigwith says everybody should learn how to grow food. It's honestly one of the most rewarding things you can do to grow your own food. Is there a salad that tastes better than a salad that you've done 100% out of your own garden? The answer is no. Deborah says, I lived above an abattoir like a slaughterhouse in Yellowknife for a while. People would bring in, in hunting carcasses. So, yeah, I know what the deal is, says Deborah haas says four ounces of red meat a day is is plenty to seek justice chimes in a lot of you the 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 wendell berry reference resonated says he writes so beautifully about the spiritual practices open to us from nature what a great reference from jeff a lot of you are talking about bees some random guy says i really want more people to talk about plant proteins that aren't just tofu i can't stand tofu but i'm very hesitant to lose my gym gains Megan says yeah here's the thing though telling people to just start growing their food is very presumptive it's very labor intensive it's costly to start not everybody can afford to work the land not everybody's able-bodied I mean Megan as you're implying that not everybody has access to land right Tracy says it's difficult for me to get enough protein as a type 2 diabetic without meat because non-meat sources of protein are higher in carbs It's not impossible, but it's more difficult. Guy says industrialized farms are a big part of the problem. Being a farmer doesn't inherently mean that you care more about the environment. It's a good point. Jillian says milk is necessary. Jillian says, I'm hoping to donate breast milk. They pasteurize it and give it to premature babies. The idea of these milk banks, breast milk banks, is a fascinating conversation. Sam you look like that resonated with you. Do you have have background? I did a radio interview on this once and it blew my mind. I I
2: don't have I don't have background on this But uh, I do know of a famous story in um, In New York City or it might be New York State where you talking about uh, the ice cream shop No, I am talking about there was a group of mothers that were participating in a breast milk bank and they were having trouble transporting it and an all-female motorcycle club would run the breast milk around the city. For- really? Yeah. Did you, did either of you, Sarah, have you ever, did you hear the story? Do you remember the story? This is a couple of years ago about
0: the the place. I need to get the background on it so I'm not inaccurate. But it was something like either it got shut down or they were starting to open it or health officials, somewhere in the States, they wanted to do a breast milk ice cream. Do you
3: remember hearing about this story? This is all news to me. I... I've, yeah, my hair is getting blown back. Right yeah, now.
0: The, the the idea of the breast milk bank is wonderful because a lot of, of a lot of new moms have a hard time, difficult time making it happen. And, and uh, I can't seem on a on a quick Google search. I can't seem to find the story. But yeah, it was an absolutely wild one. Leather soup brings up lab grown meat. We can talk a bit about that why says main breeds it says there needs to be a conversation about the breed of livestock that are used for meat production main breeds used are done for factory production not quality of product or efficiency of product there's huge waste other breeds are more efficient i mean maybe in in some production circumstances in others i mean you know genetics that that, that for example a cattle rancher might have a beef producer might have the genetics are are the most important thing to them and uh, and they would they would certainly take issue with the fact that you assert that there's not and maybe i'm misinterpreting the comment but that there's not a quality implication of the breed certainly not not the truth james says 100 years from now we'll probably have figured out how to grow meat in a vat donna says we know real talk will be around in 100 years i hope not i hope i'm long gone (laughs) quite frankly deborah says i scurry past the cricket powder in superstore that's another angle we could take crickets proteins People are making cricket tortilla chips. People are making cricket, all kinds of things. Linda Ray says Jeff is like a renaissance person. I got to move on. I mean, I could read from the live chat all morning. I totally appreciate it, but but we've got guests hanging tight, ready to go, ready to talk hunting. Let me take the second very quickly to remind you that PowerEd by Athabasca University offers short online and on-demand professional development courses and certificates. It's leading-edge, flexible on-demand learning. You can learn more about it at PowerEd.ca. Courses and certificates in areas like leadership digital wellness, allyship and inclusion. What does that mean? How do you live it? How do you qualify, so to speak? What about project management? Artificial intelligence, looking for a new job? Machine learning, digital transformation, and a whole lot more. You can check it out online at PowerEd.ca. Some of these courses, like self-improvement opportunities that take two or three hours, not two or three weeks, not two or three months. Find more at PowerEd.ca. Ca. A quick reminder that while you may think of Apple computers, while you may think of MacBooks and iMacs and Apple Watches and iPhones, when you think of Westworld computers, they've also got your sound covered. That's right. Audio products like Beats, Ultimate Ears, JBL, and of course, Sonos, the entire home Wi-Fi audio system. You can either check them out in store. They've got all the safety protocols in place in West Edmonton or find them online. They'll ship anywhere. Via westworld.ca And a shout out to our friends at the Dairy Queens Of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park They are sending ripples Through the pond All the other Dairy Queens wondering what's going on At these six locations Because they're offering real talkers Peanut Buster Parfaits for $1.99 All you gotta do is drop my name or tell them you're a fan of real talk. We're talking about the creamy vanilla soft serve, the rich, hot fudge. If we had a live studio audience, we would go rich, hot, we would all do it together. Peanuts too, of course, topped off with DQ's trademark curl. And the iconic Red Spoon. a $1.99 Peanut Buster Parfaits. That's like 60% off of the six Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park for the rest of the month of May. Let's talk hunting. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Let me declare my position on this. I have a ton of respect for hunters. I have a ton of respect for people that bust their asses, that get out to nature, that have an understanding of how to track animals, that spend their entire year putting out trail cams and shed hunting, and they finally find that buck or they find what they're going to fill their family's freezer with, and they harvest it. Right? They clean it. They hike it out. They either butcher it themselves They feed their family They know where their food came from They're not participating in the factory farm scenario There's a lot of benefits, I think, to this practice I personally am not a hunter But I don't have a problem with people that are People drive me nuts When they kill grizzly bears Giraffes Rhinos Lions And the like Yeah, they'll tell you that the meat goes to a village They'll tell you that they're Kickstarting the local economy But I call bullshit It drives me nuts And I recognize that Our next three guests May see eye to eye with me On some of this stuff They may disagree with Every single thing I say We're going to turn them loose And let them take over And I guarantee you This is going to be a must watch Darren Chevry is a good friend of mine He's a restaurateur You've probably heard of His family's restaurant Chartier in Beaumont It's it's a celebrated spot He's a so-called adult onset hunter And, uh, well, he's big into the bows. And we're going to learn more about Darren coming up in just a little bit. Dr. Joshua Duclos is the author of Value, Morality, and Wilderness. Really excited to add his voice to the program. He's wrote an article, Is Hunting Moral, a few years ago, completing his Ph.D. in philosophy at Boston University. And Aaron Rochford. Aaron, have I pronounced your name okay? Thumbs up. Am am, am I doing all right? i did did okay i've been following you for a while on instagram um this is the first you you wound up on my radar first as a realtor i knew you were a realtor and then i saw your instagram and i went you're you're like a hardcore hunter this is no joke you're a hardcore hunter why don't we start with you how do you approach this conversation what does hunting mean to your life
6: Wow. i mean what a loaded question to start with first of all um hunting in and itself is is life you know it's um, it's a community it's a lifestyle it's a belief set and uh, I mean I think as some of the other guys will agree with me it has a lot to do with just how you perceive and how you move through life so hunting to me is really more of um, not only like a mantra but a lifestyle and everything wrapped in one and at my core it really is who I am is a huntress and um, so, to me, it means having my eyes open to the reality of life and death and the cycle of life, and understanding my place here on Earth and in the universe, and realizing you know the fragility of life, but also the preciousness of it. And um, I feel like when you are involved in your food cycle, when you are hands-on involved in nourishing yourself and nourishing your family, um, this gives you a deep sense of understanding and gratitude for, for your life. And so, you know, for me, it's not just going out there and killing an animal. It's about everything and how that changes your perspective in life and how it really brings um, all aspects into kind of um, a cohesive whole, if that makes sense. It allows you, it gives you a place in this world.
0: We hear, I, I mean understanding and gratitude and cohesive whole i i I mean these are big words and and it goes to to i think reiterate how this is so much more than than just bagging something for food or bagging something for sport doctor let me ask you i mean to establish the tone here or at least establish your perspective you know you've built your phd around exploring whether or not hunting is moral is it
7: i think it can be the first thing I would want to say is that I, I have no judgment to make about any any particular individual in this. Um, what I see the task of a moral philosopher as being is primarily to analyze moral problems and try and make discussions about them a little bit more fruitful. Um, I think everyone's pretty aware that much of our moral and political discourse these days is rancorous and stupid. Um, and sometimes if you just analyze what the debate's actually about, you can do something with it. So the the first thing I'd suggest is get clear on the different types of hunting you're talking about. Um, There's many ways to break it down, but basically you could say there's what's been called therapeutic hunting, subsistence hunting, and sport hunting, where therapeutic refers to harvesting certain animals as an attempt to um, rebalance an ecosystem, um, correct for an image, where subsistence is people um, gathering nourishment or resources for themselves or for others. And sport is about some sort of experience uh, that, that the hunter is, is looking for. And pretty often those can overlap. I mean, you could be engaged in therapeutic hunting where you're also harvesting the meat and you also value the experience. Um, so they don't need to be exclusive. But when you're, when you're debating about hunting, the position you take about the morality of it really depends on what kind of hunting you're doing. And then the next question, which maybe we could get into is what exactly are the objections people have to it? And I think there's, there's a few different prominent kinds i'm
0: absolutely looking forward to that i have no idea w- what aaron and, and darren are going are to say about if there's a difference in in sport hunting a grizzly in bc or, or, or alberta you know maybe and 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 i i i checked myself because i know that legislation has changed uh in those jurisdictions recently um whether or not there's a difference in taking down a moose or taking down a giraffe we're going to get into that 100 percent. but darren adult onset hunter so so what does that mean? I mean, d- did you grow up with just the softest lotion-glazed hands that had never seen the butt of a rifle or I, a bow?
8: I am the biggest <laughs> bleeding heart you will ever meet in your life. <laughs> um, and my father can attest to this. I'm sure that I was his worst hunting partner he had ever brought into the field. I I can remember as a young boy missing deer on purpose. I I just have this soft spot for nature and it's, and it's what drew me to hunting in the first place. So I think being an adult onset hunter is one of the fastest growing segments of hunting. Um, And I believe that this pandemic is something that's going to really supercharge people's desire to figure out where their food is coming from. Um, how they're getting their food and their role in that so yeah a bleeding heart turned hunter it's not uh not everybody's story
0: what was it though darren i mean was it was it was it the influence of your family was it was it sort of a, a thing like i like I, I i've all vowed to this audience i'll vow to the thousands of people that'll hear this i will hunt one day maybe i'll hunt with one of you i don't know i don't have a personal problem i know it'd be difficult I'm going to tell you right now, I mean, I, I, I've been out with animals with a 300 millimeter image stabilizer lens. I love shooting photos. I don't know if I could take down a move. I mean, I guess I, sh- I. this is the whole point. You see how I'm stammering and stuttering totally. and trying to figure this out. I mean, this has been a process in my mind for, for 25 years. What was it for you?
8: For me, I think being in hospitality and a restaurateur for so long, I mean, I've been in this industry for 25 years now and and seeing where our food come from and, and learning my place in that as, as my time in kitchens went on and my role in restaurants changed, you know, when we decided we were going to open our own restaurant, it was very important to me that I understood where our food was coming from and that I actually walked the walk. So I've been hunting now, this will be my eighth season hunting. Um, and it did it came from wanting to understand where my food came from. And the more that I saw where our food system was going and where um our mass consumption and our understanding of where it was coming from was getting lost, I knew that if I was going to walk the walk and talk the talk in the restaurant, there was more to that layer to kind of unpeel and have a look at. So, I did a lot of soul searching and, and, and I did it myself. I, I learned how to do this myself. And I think that doing that as well, you, you create your own narrative to what hunting is for you. It's, it's no one else's it's, it's why you're doing it. So.
0: Aaron, we ask uh, a guest of the show to provide us with, with a quick bio. And, and I was really intrigued by how you, you describe yourself as a sustenance hunter. What does that mean? How does that like, is it, is it different for you? Someone that sport hunts a grizzly versus someone that harvests a moose versus someone ah. that goes over for big game hunting in Africa. You knew the question was coming.
6: Yeah, it's fine, but I got to correct you on this. Whole Please sport do. Hunting Please thing. do. It's driving me nuts. Um, Good. I'll be honest. There's, there's different, there's sustenance hunting, which is, I fall into that category. Whereas um, I take a look at an animal that I feel, you know, what comes across and, and it is an opportunity. I'm not searching for the biggest rack or the biggest buck. I do take those if they're dry, if they don't, if they haven't had, you know, so I'm looking to fill my freezer. That's my, that's always been my primary. Yeah. Um, secondary would be selective harvesters. And we really have to Separate this. So selective harvesters sometimes get lumped into the sport hunting category, which is not accurate. These are the guys who are out there. They're looking for big horns on a buck. They're looking for potential Boone and Crockett or, you know, and like they're they're looking for the big racks and that. And there's nothing wrong with that. The record setters, right? But it's not necessarily record setters. They're just looking for a a specific standard and up. And so they're letting, you know, the little spiker bucks walk. They're, you know, so they're actually allowing a lot of these animals to thrive and grow and continue to the next year. And then we would have what you would call your quote unquote sport hunters. And we really, you know, we could get into ours. I don't think it's applicable in so much of our conversation because we're talking about Canada here. And there is no real aggressive sport hunting with maybe the exception of sheep, um, where people are specifically going for a trophy animal. Um, and But that is such a difficult hunt in itself that I don't feel like it's the same on the same par. But what I really want to say is, is about, you know, we, we can loop back to the morals and the ethics. I think we have to really be careful about that. We need to talk about ethics as ethics and morality as something subjective to each and every person. So for myself, and this is just myself, somebody may have a different opinion. Ethics is all that matters. And ethics is based on biology. And if it's ethical to hunt an animal, it is because the biologists say it is. It's because they say that the carrying capacity of the land or whatever it is, that is the reason that we need to either tender and work. And I love that. I'm going to get some argument back here. And morality is how we feel for me is how we feel about Hunting an animal, whether or not it feels right to us or the reasons why we do it. And that to me is very subjective. So I think that the, this, the hard ethics of hunting should be dictated by the biologists, like they are at Alberta uh, here. In Alberta, here we have a draw system. You can't just go out and hunt anything, you have to get drawn. There's tags, there's censuses, um, you know, and only a certain amount of animals can be harvested per year. Versus the morality of does this feel good to me or does this feel right to me, and um, and I think that that separation is really important um, for me. Ultimately, as a sustenance hunter, I take what comes in front of me um, or what presents a good opportunity that I feel is morally and is morally right. Obviously, I follow to the ethics already, um, being that I follow all the legislation and laws, and I'm not out there to find a big massive buck, right? So, doctor, that's what.
7: Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure where to start with that. I'm not sure where, how you just got those definitions of ethics or morality. <laughs> I don't want to go to, too far down that rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> you, just, you just begged the entire question. Um, you just assumed that it's all moral and then said, we know it's moral. And now let's just let the biologist sort out how we should do this thing that we already have decided is, is moral. So, I mean, if, if that's the position you're going to take and you just said, you know, someone who goes out and shoots a buck and they like the points, they're not doing anything wrong. Well, m- maybe they're not, but that's the entire question <laughs> mm. is what, what is right or wrong about it. Um, I, I'm gonna leave the distinction between ethics and morality aside, but this concerning idea about let's just do what the biologists say, I'm sorry, that's a complete category mistake. If you've decided that hunting is moral, and, and again, I'll just throw my cards out there. I think it is. In many instances, I think it is. I have hunted, I have no issue with other people hunting. So if that, if that helps the conversation, I'll I'll put it out there. Um, If you think that a certain kind of therapeutic hunting is morally permissible or perhaps even morally obligatory as human stewards of the environment, then I agree. We should talk to conservation biologists who can tell us how to do it in the most optimal way. What you will never get from a biologist who is doing biology rather than doing moral philosophy is any understanding of whether the act or the activity itself uh, is moral. I mean, the best you're going to get from a biologist on, on morality is some kind of Darwinian war of all against all nature is red and <laughs> tooth and claw and have at it where, you know, we're all monkeys in a pit. Um, so I just, I just don't think that'll cut it in the way that anyone talking, any philosopher talking about the ethics of hunting, they better speak to hunters. They better understand what they're doing. They, they better have some knowledge of this, but to think simply that because someone is a hunter, they have more insights into the ethics of hunting, that's a mistake any, any more than to say that, well, let's, let's talk about, um, you know, um, war. Who's the best pr- people to, t- to lay out a just war theory? Well, it's gonna be a soldier. No, the soldier might be the best person to fight the war. They might be the best person to give you insight onto what it feels like and to what the perspective is uh, of that individual. But uh, no, no, we don't want to listen to the biologists, <laughs> not if we're actually doing moral philosophy.
0: Darren, I want to give you a chance to get on this, but Aaron, I want to give you a chance to respond first.
8: No yeah, I think the morality side of things and ethics, I, the, the definition is confusing for me. But I, I, I do I need to understand the morality side of things a little bit more, because for me, morality would be a definition that I it's my it's it's up to me whether it's a moral discussion. Right. And that was my, even in philosophy, in philosophy and university, I came up against this problem. Like, where's the end answer? Where do you, where do we, we can dance around that question all we want from one person's point of view to another. But at the end of the day, I think the individual is the person who's deciding whether that's moral for them. Is it not?
7: Well, Well, yeah. If you want to add that last phrase for them, I mean, sure. At the end of the day, you can decide anything is moral for you. You but aren't those morals? Isn't that morals? That moral? is morals. Or I
6: completely agree. No, no, I mean, you don't I'm sorry, create morals sorry, for me. It's yeah. It's, it's, you don't, it's don't get not. to dictate my morals. You don't get to dictate what's no, moral I don't get and to what dictate isn't. Them. I don't get to dictate
7: your understanding of physics, but there are laws of physics. You can acknowledge them or not. <laughs>
8: <laughs> totally. And that's, but, but that's a, the, the difference. That's a difference between a philosophy and a science, in my opinion. Like the philosophical side of this is what we are discussing. So like where, where are you to tell me that, that I know that you think it is moral in certain ways. And I judge, I I will be the first to admit that I am as judgmental towards (laughs) some other hunters that don't have the same morality that I have. Because that, to me, is what's like. So, where do we, where do we draw? How do we come up with that answer?
7: Well, there's no, there's absolutely no debate to be had if you, if you've already decided that everyone gets to come up with their own rules on this. I mean, I'm, I'm really but baffled. But as for the difference between but those ethics rules. and morality, so- <laughs> these are just two different words. I, I'm not sure why we've decided ethics and morality are different other than you've decided one is objective and one is subjective. So if that's the case, let's forget the subjective one, you, forget I, morality. Let's I just haven't. talk about I, the ethics.
8: I'm speaking on both. Like that's, it's the same word to me, a moral and ethics and values. Those are all the same things. Your morals are your okay. values. You create those. Do you not? I'm just curious about your, like, I don't, I'm not. Uh, no, no, I don't think you do. I think you can. <laughs>
0: Well, let me okay. let me let me jump in and, and establish because I, I wonder if and and my head's spinning a little bit um, on 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 discerning a difference between ethics and morals. But I think that that it's probably worth pointing out that as a society uh, or even as as a human race, we determine certain understood ethical foundations or moral foundations we don't always live by them Uh, we see what we allow to happen in Rwanda or I mean we're going to be talking about Palestine tomorrow morning by the way we got a lot of conversations to be had uh, about about positions we take Uh, you know you know we've observed Holocaust Remembrance Day recently I'm not tying this to hunting obviously let me clearly state that (laughs) but as a society we've come forward and said there are certain things we will not stand for we will never forget we will not allow to happen again and then and then we're, we're kind of a bunch of hypocrites on that file but we have things that yeah. we establish as a human race then we have things that we establish as as a nation for example this may be law in the united states or this may be law in canada and then we have things around you know our personal code right do you spank your child or not do you drive after three glasses of wine uh, do you smoke with the windows rolled up with the toddler like the, the different I I mean i'm oversimplifying this to be silly so there are different levels i suppose aaron and, and and maybe what we're determining now is that maybe this is a conversation where i think we all knew we're not going to collectively reach consensus on this
6: which is the lovely thing i mean i think the problem <laughs> Side note, the problem with the whole cancel culture or things like that is people seem to have a hard time listening to other people's opinion and accepting that sometimes we're just not going to agree. And that's completely okay. I see hunting insofar as uh, from the ethics, morality side of things as a right and as a basic human nature. And I'm, I'm going to kind of explain this a little bit more. Um, you know, I don't want to get into something oversimplistic as like, you know, wolf and sheep and prey and predator and blah, blah, blah. But it's like, if you look at us we're we're omnivorous, right? We are we're a lot like a bear I like to consider us. And there's some of us that are more the gatherer bears and then there's others that are hunters. But at the end of the day, as humans we have to consume, we have to uh, eat. We've got to live. And how you choose to do that is going to be dictated by your morality. Whether you say, if you have a religious, um, you know, set that specifies your morality of what's right to eat and what isn't. Um, but ultimately I agree completely um, is that with Darren is that it's, it's really simple. We choose our morality and, and as a, as a, as a human, as a consumer, you know, we choose what is moral and what isn't. And I don't believe that those morals should be dictated by society or by anybody else but ourselves and, and within ourselves. Because a vegan can say that they have they have the, the most moral eating, except for that they consumed foods that destroyed, you know, over 90% of the prairie lands, natural prairie lands, because of agricultural harvesting. Um, you know, we've got... People who uh, believe that farmed animals are the only way because it's cruel to kill them and it's cruel to let Bambi. And, you know, so everybody has that morality. Um, But ultimately, and this is just my point of view, uh, I'm a big, I'm in favor of, I believe the most moral or the most ethically responsible style of eating is actually a locavore. And that's somebody who attempts as much as possible to, you know, it's that farm to table close within a hundred kilometers. And a part of that for me is actively hunting and sourcing my meat from wild game. And that I try to um, I try to fill my freezers at minimum with around 75% of what I eat now. Uh, And I wasn't always this way, but what I eat now is 75% wild game or birds or things that I try to hunt within a hundred kilometer radius or within Alberta at the least. And um, to me, that's a much more ethical style of, uh, of eating or a much more moral, responsible, if you want to talk about it from a human perspective, while still respecting the fact that I am an omnivore and I have the right to hunt. It's not a moral question. It's a right. It's a right to consume food that I choose that works with my morality to feed my flesh and my blood.
8: And I think at the end of the day, though, when you look at this, and I think you bring up a really good point, like this, this journey that everyone is on... Uh, it, it's all this ethic value, moral journey. Like a vegan is on the exact same journey as, as a carnivore, as a, like, we're, we're all trying to figure out the best way and where our values lay to support ourselves, support our families have like, there's, it's the same journey. It's just, again, it's the morality issue of different values. So, I mean, those are my values and, and that that's personal for me. Everybody has their own. All right, I, I want I I to jump
0: in real quick before this conversation goes any further. And then, Doc, I'm going to hand it off to you. We're, we're, we're getting some interesting feedback here. I just want to clarify something. Um, I have a, a list of how the show goes and things I mentioned at which point I'm going to fast track something and bump it up in the show. We're getting a lot of pushback right now that there's not an indigenous voice on this panel. I want to let you know that as a, a production team, we've discussed this at a time. We believe that the indigenous perspective on hunting and on harvesting food and on sustainability is so important that we're working on producing an independent, a full panel uh featuring indigenous voices three of them on the panel it's in the works the ball is rolling that is coming up on a future episode of real talk thank you to everyone sincerely for indicating your concern we share your perspective it's an important perspective and that's why we're dedicating a show to that in particular doctor let's get back to our conversation
7: um i i have a suggestion of maybe how we could i I think (laughs) move the conversation forward rather than getting bogged down in, in semantics but Though, Aaron, I have to say, saying it's about rights, it's not about morality, to anyone who spends their life studying moral philosophy, makes absolutely no sense. Everything about rights is about morality. But, okay, so let let me, I agree with you that no one should dictate your morality to you. 100%, I'm with you. And that in a sense, we all do choose our morality and that we are gonna have to decide how to live the most moral lives we can, all right? So we're in agreement on that. But then the interesting question is, there are all these options. So which one do you choose? Which one ought you choose? And then we have a normative question. So if someone says the most moral thing to choose is not to eat meat, or someone says the most moral thing is to eat lab lab created meat, or to only eat roadkill, or to hunt your own meat, or and then then you're in a normative question, not about who gets to dictate your morality to you, but what morality ought you as an individual um, to choose. Does I mean? Does that make sense? And then we can have a discussion about what morality we ought to be choosing. And, but if it simply is whatever happens to feel right to you at the moment, that's a scary way to think about morality, I, I would say. Otherwise, and there's no point in argument because we're not exchanging reasons. We're just saying go with what you feel. Aaron
0: do you I, I want to ask all three of you this do, is there a, like what got the ball rolling on this I love these conversations I the, the show this show will be about these types of conversations but I got started um after watching the video of an NRA uh executive bagging and elephant and, and I mean the hunters that were watching the video were laughing at, at, at how piss poor his rifle skills were and then other people were just pissed off they were killing an elephant and i was i was among them do you see a difference i mean do, 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 does your value set change or does your, your your understanding of morality around this change depending on who's hunting what and where
6: oof well this is gonna blow your show up so uh ultimately yeah oh yeah here it comes so again uh i look at the morality of what you choose to do is is up to you, and though I would never uh, go to Africa and kill an elephant, the simple fact is, is that, yes, the arguments that you hate hearing about the fact that they do feed uh, the elephant meat and they do do this and they do that... I am not going to be a person that judges a person's choice of what they hunt as long as it's legal and as long as the biologists and the science dictates that and I know it's a ultimately I don't I'm a, a lot more libertarian than than I think people are comfortable with but I do believe that, uh, that people have the right to sport hunt. Um, I do believe that, would I do it? No, it's not my thing. But I also believe that people have the freedom of speech and to do what they wanna do and say what they wanna do. And ultimately, um, you know, who am I to put impose my morals on that person? Would I do it? No. But again, it's what Darren was saying. Who are you to put your morals on me? I don't agree with it. It's not my thing but I'm also not going to tell somebody they're not allowed to do it. I'm not going to tell anybody that.
8: Darren. Um, Sticky question, Mm right? You know, I, I, it does come down to that morality side of things. And I, 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 I'm a little, it's a double-edged sword because I want to sit here and not be judged for what I do. (laughs) But if I'm being completely honest and I know that this is going to get me in trouble in the hunting community, I, I personally have a small bit of judgment towards that. And I, just based off of my own research. And, and I think Ryan, you put it the last episode is that small dick energy kind of thing, but it's like the, the, the necessity to go improve something, whatever those values are. Now that's not my right to judge. And if, if you, someone needs to go prove something to themselves, great. It's just not my jam. I am as well as sustenance hunter. I'm somebody who, who hunts for food in my freezer. That's local. And, and I, I can't imagine Um, the kick, but I do understand that it's a broken system there where we're feeding into a broken system. Those, the food side of things where you're feeding villages and, and the money that is put into conservation. These are the arguments that quote unquote, trophy hunters make. Um, Again, to probably help with some of their own morality, but that (laughs) system is broken. There's other ways to conserve animals than, you know, charging $110,000 to shoot a lion. I think there's other ways, there's other proven ways of conservation but that system is broken, unfortunately.
0: Uh, yeah. Dr. Duclos, I mean, you you uh you, I mean you're the only one on the panel with a PhD in this uh out of Boston University. Your book coming out, Value Morality and Wilderness. Do, do you see hunts, guided hunts in, in 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 Africa any different than than a guided hunt or an individual's hunt in North America?
7: Not not necessarily. And Aaron, you might be surprised. I I, I agree with you a bit more on this than maybe you would have. <laughs> You would have expected um though there seems to be a real hesitation here about making judgments it's okay to judge people that's true if you're a racist i'm going to judge you and i'm not (laughs) going to say live your life totally do your thing (laughs) right If you want to bring back slavery i'm going to judge you and i will i will well you know i'll i'll hopefully do something more than have serious words but i'll maybe also give you an argument about why that's asinine so let's not be so afraid of making judgments so long as we back them up um I actually find the distinction between the morality of whether you want to call it therapeutic or subsistence or, or sport hunting a little bit um, specious sometimes. So the case of Walter Palmer hunting uh, Cecil the lion several years ago. Yeah. I thought the, the reaction to that and the moral outrage that that garnered was insanely disproportionate. Um, mm-hmm. and, and one of the ways you can see that is try to figure out exactly what it is people find morally objectionable about hunting. So, if if either of you would want to play devil's advocate what do you think it is that upsets people so much you know exactly and with with the case of the lion um it mostly seems like it was some sort of repulsion at the figure that walter palmer was perceived to be it was what sort of monster are you that you derive enjoyment of killing something that we take to be a beautiful majestic creature i'm not sure it was really sympathy for the lion only one in eight male lions survives to adulthood. I don't imagine everyone who was losing their minds on Twitter was crying day in and day out about all the little lions that are dying, but somehow, you know, Walter Palmer kills one. So what exactly is it? There was also a fascinating op-ed in the oh, New York man. Times after that by a, uh, a man who lived in the region where Cecil was killed, and he had all these people in America sending him condolences, and his reaction was, good, they got one. Because his experience was lions attack people, they eat us. So um, I'm, I'm not sure um, without giving a full theory of what I think about the ethics of hunting. I don't think it's so simple to say that because someone is killing a what is for us in North America, an exotic, beautiful creature to derive some sort of personal satisfaction is obviously an immoral thing to do. I know that and Aaron just wants to get in. So take it away.
6: I'm going to let Darren go because he's chomping at the bit and I'll follow up behind him. Sure.
8: I just, no, I think that that was just a, it's an interesting point around this type of species that you bring up too. And I'm sure that you've studied this doctor, that the cute and fuzzies tend to garner more reaction than the wild boar hog type of reaction. Am I right? Is that a, is that a thing?
7: Yeah. Make a Disney movie
8: about an animal and then people don't want you hunting it. Yeah. 100%. (laughs)
0: Aaron referenced Bambi. There's the proof,
8: Darren. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Now watch a pack of coyotes eat a live Bambi from the back end up. And totally. It, it changes your perspective.
6: So that's exactly what I want. I think that there's a bit of, I'll be just completely candid here. Um,
8: you haven't
0: been already?
6: Really, no, <laughs> I know. I've been holding back. Okay. No. Here we go. Uh, I, I genuinely believe that um, people don't want, and this is what I talked about, about the hunting being a part of understanding where you sit in as a part of life and death. People nowadays are very, very much, um, they really take umbrage to the idea of death, just in general. And, um, you know, it's like the idea of killing or the idea, like, I know so many people that love a steak, but, oh, gosh, I could never kill a cow. Like, oh, they're so cute and fuzzy. And it's like, it's like you're lying to yourself. You have no, like, it's this... It's a self-delusion that we are not a part of the earth and the earth cycle and life and death and all of these things. And so when they see another predator species, I find that it's often the predator species that people get very worked up about, um, like cougars, like lions, um, you know, like wolves, like bears, where they think... You know, this is just another predator. There's no use for actually killing this. They take umbrage to that fact, and and it kind of freaks them out, I think. And they don't like the idea of death. They don't like the idea of hunting, of being a predator. They they want to live in a isolated, cozy bubble where meat just magically grows on trees. Nothing ever dies, and and it's just this fallacy that. And then so then they have this fake moral outrage about, oh, God, there's this white guy who paid some money, like as if that's a bad thing. And again, I'm going to argue this point. Like ultimately, at the end of the day, I've been to Africa. I've I've seen the game farms there. I've never hunted them or anything. I was there for another reason. But, you know, it's like I've seen the planes. I've seen this. And I think that this idea that it's bad to do the things that you want to do or the things that, you know, fulfill each person, even if they're morally, uh, you know, reprehensible. I think it's bad to kill. Like... (laughs) Yeah, dude, you don't have an issue with killing an animal? I am so sad every time that I either pull exactly. My... So really, like, but the, I don't think idea. it's wrong. I don't think it's bad. Killing, killing is one of the. That's what
8: makes this
7: a part moral of issues. life. The, killing. Life. That's it. Killing
6: for me is the hardest thing.
8: It's it's my it's least hardest, favorite part bad. about hunting. It is you the can't... least part of least favorite thing about hunting. I agree Taking with something you, life comes with severe, major weight. That if Huge. if you don't think that there is something. That 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 taking another life, it, you have to pay gratitude to that. That's why you pay. But that's why you pay gratitude is the guilt and the the mm. feeling of why. Aaron, you can't deny oh, that.
6: I have to really. I have to argue with you. You I don't mean, feel I, guilty? There's I something wrong with you. Okay, so what Karen, happens? That's, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I
8: I think it's incredibly
7: helpful because you've we've finally put our finger on the fact that this is a moral issue and or if you want to say ethics, that's fine. Okay. Why, why don't we, why aren't we having a debate about the morality of blueberry picking? Why aren't we having a a debate about the morality of cutting grass? All right. Because you're not killing something and you're not killing some, no, you're not when you pick blueberries and you're not killing something, even if you pulled up the bush, that is sentient, that has a robust mental life, that has a social, uh, a social network. So we, you are killing something. And, and the second you acknowledge that, as Darren is doing, you need to acknowledge that there's a moral issue here. And now you can you can think about it as a consequentialist, if you want. You weigh out the cost benefits. You can invoke some kind of natural law theory, which, you know, Aaron, you've, you've done a bit. You've said, look, it's natural. This is who we are. We're omnivores. Don't ask me to be other than that which I am. And that's fine. But it certainly is a moral issue because you're killing another sentient being.
6: I agree insofar as that. But I, I- I don't agree that killing is bad and I don't agree because I have a different moral set. But I will say this, and I agree with Darren in a lot of factors, is that when I do take a life, we all, I think we can, all of us can speak to, there's generally a ritual that we all have. There are, I mean, mine, myself, my personal ritual is after, you know, I approach my kill and everything like that. I mean, I put my hand over their eyes. I put blades of grass in their mouth. And I make a prayer and I say, thank you for giving your life to sustain mine and may you run forever free on the winds. That came to me naturally without ever thinking about it the first time I had a kill, a a big animal kill. And now it's just something that comes. And that's, and the gratitude I feel for the animal that I'm going to, that I've harvested, not killed, harvested. So let's talk about that a little bit. Is the, is not a guilt
8: though. And that's semantics as a hunter, You can say ki- harvested, you can, like we're killing something. We At are. the end of the day, like you have to, you're taking a life. We and are. I'm not saying that you don't like, it, and this is where we do come up with the, the debate of whether it's right or wrong. And a small part of me, no matter what, still feels like there's something wrong with taking a life so then hang like, on a second a hang on a second
0: Listen. darren but hang then, then how can yeah. you how can you bring yourself to do it i mean aaron says i she's don't sad but doesn't think it's wrong and i want to ask her how she why she's sad if she doesn't think it's wrong you think you acknowledge that it's wrong 100 so why I think are you doing it
8: for, because i eat meat ryan i think it's wrong for me to sit down and eat a plate of meat and so have should we stop zero- eating meat no why um, because again, that brings you back to your debate of morality of whether that's your own individual decision or not, and how you want to survive. Doctor, you look like your head's hurting from my comments. <laughs>
7: I just, st- I wish we could stop using the word morality as personal preference. We all have personal preferences. I like wearing this t-shirt okay, value, rather than then. Pink use t-shirt. value.
8: t-shirt. Use value as your word then. I don't I don't really, you're getting hooked up on semantics again, just because no, you study no,
7: this. No, I'm not. But if we don't use words in in any sort of conventional way, it's not possible. If, if all we're saying about morality is, is it's your personal preference, then there's no debate to be had, because everyone can have their personal
6: preference. See, this is
8: the philosophy thing. You can just talk in circles. <laughs> I, wish I, would have to, I would
6: have to agree, unfortunately. But I think one of the other things that we can talk talk about if we want to talk about, say, morality as a cohesive group, right? We want to talk about societal and things like that. Um, you know, then we get into the semantics of who has a right of of dictating the morality. Is it strictly the hunters, or is it everybody at large? Like, we want to talk, say, um, so for in Alberta, for example, because this is the numbers I know. Um, 89% of hunters are males between the ages of 20 to 54, as per uh, the government audited study of distribution of the rags. So only 11% are women. Does that mean that you know, if we're going to look at morality as a cohesive, and everybody kind of gets to decide? gets to decide? which I think is where you're going with that professor is that morality is more of a group consensus. Then are we only sentencing, uh, you know, basically men between the age of 20 and 54, or are we looking at the whole cohesive whole and maybe how do we get a better discussion or a more balanced discussion around hunting through all representations, not just, you know, where we see it normally.
7: I don't even know where to go from here.
6: This is fantastic. i'd
7: be curious to know what even if you're just playing devil's advocate what do you think it is that vehement opponents of hunting find so objectionable i mean i have some thoughts on this but I, but i'd be curious so so it's killing but mm-hmm. but um i mean is that it is it that uh, just
8: that I, I think it's the killed? self-righteousness in being able to go and take a life like that who what is your right to take that animal's life that is living in peace in harmony yeah, that's see, what i me, feel for
4: me
0: it's hits, and, and darren you might be right but i like i don't think it's cut and dried right like as a matter of fact i'm uh, i don't hunt and and actually it's a, it's an interesting time of year for people that aren't hunters uh through hunting season when many of our close friends and family are so proudly displaying what they've worked so hard for and what they are proud of which is 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 their buck or whatever right and and we see a lot of those photos and a lot of them i i like stuff that forces me to ask the tough questions so i'm not going to sit here and say that oh you believe you have the ability to take a life i think as human beings we believe i mean i grew up in a religious scenario where people talked about things like man having dominion over the animals and you grow up with this understanding that really you can kind of do whatever the fuck you want uh, as long as you're man right and not animal and this has kind of been the way that we've approached it i think that when it comes to hunting a lot of people might be described as, as bleeding hearts i would probably be looped into that because i could make an argument why i do believe it's different to To shoot a pest like a coyote on a farm i've had ranchers reach out to me and tell me that they have calves being attacked by coyotes before they're even fully born like the coyotes are going at the back of the cow getting the calf on the way out they say don't talk to me about canada goose coats having coyote fur lining the hoods let me tell you about coyotes i think that's different than than taking down a deer to feed your family and i think that's drastically different I mean, Doc, I didn't expect you to be the one to essentially justify hunting lions in Africa, but you made me feel like an idiot. But in all seriousness, hey.
7: Please don't use that soundbite. Lions...
0: That's going to be that's the one we picked. But but let, me, but let me tell you this, and then and then I'll shut my mouth, because you three are doing a better job of this yeah. than me. I'll close my mouth. But I, see a bit, I can see that, actually, as a matter of fact, lions are coming into villages and killing people, and I'm glad they got one. Okay. But as far as I know, giraffes or elephants are a bit of a different story, and elephants mourn losses, and elephants are community and social. And, I mean, I've spoken out about the fact that our zoo here, we, we have an, an elephant we've kept alone for 30 years. We try to tell kids she's happy because she's learned how to paint with her trees. Drunk. give me a break. They're social animals. We know that.
8: So but I can't. You can you can say the same thing about birds. Birds are very social animals. Sure. They mate for life. You, But nobody, a lot of people don't have a problem. It like the totally. difference between the elephant and the, the, the mallard that you shoot out of the sky. 100%. And, and they have hundred percent.
0: And and people that that would that would be further down the scale than me would say, look at Jesperson running his mouth big time about you know the ethics of this and protecting those animals. And then they'd find some video my buddy could send them with a big rock ending the life of a f- five six pound rainbow trout. You know, six pounds. No, but in all seriousness, I love fishing. So so maybe I'm a big hypocrite.
6: I think that it's a fear of death. Again, I'm going to circle back the vehemence uh, and and the pushback. Only happens, really, truly, only happens when you get closer and closer to something um, that reminds people of human, of themselves, right? It's this, this fear of the life and death cycle and of your own mortality. And so, being confronted with that mortality is not the same when you step on a cricket or when you kill a spider. You know, these are people who kill mosquitoes every day, but you don't see them freaking out. But then the minute the animal starts getting a little bit bigger, a little bit more social, a little bit more reminding them themselves of themselves. That's when we start to see the vehement pushback. So I think that this, uh, this real, real, uh, like fear is what it is, is really of our own mortality and is reflective of our own mortality and our place in the life and death cycle. And like I said, aside from the Disney characters, which obviously that creates a ton of pushback, but It's the more complex the social structure or the larger the mammal, the more people will identify with that animal and then become fearful. And when people become fearful, they become explosive and countercultury. But you won't see those same people, you know, throwing their arms up and having a protest and, and trying to basically cancel a person's life because they, you know, they snared a rabbit or because they shot a goose or because they stepped on a cricket. Like it's only when they see a uh, a simultaneous or some kind of parallel between them and the animal that was killed that you see this type of vehement reaction.
8: I think you bring up a good point, Aaron, because it's like I I personally find it a very spiritual. Like I have found spirituality yeah. again. I I grew up in a church, uh, and you know my mom gave me the choice when I was thirteen, and I said this is not right, <laughs> and I haven't been back <laughs> since. But. I have found my spirituality through hunting and through that like you do you you put things back on yourself you you see your place in this world totally differently like i i've begun praying again i pray to mother nature of all things like there's it i think there is that um there is a way to you're right that you it does turn it back on the person and i think until you've experienced that it's hard to speak on the ethics and values I, side of things.
6: I have to jump in because I want to actually uh, agree. My, I think the turning point in my life and what really it became my entire life philosophy is I was 13 years old and my father identified as a Catholic and I asked him why he never went to church, uh, you know, and uh, we were out walking, we were going for a duck hunt and uh, he turned and he looked at me and he said, words that formed my entire being. And he said, Aaron, God is everywhere and the outdoors is my church. And Mm. that resonated for the rest of my life. And when I walk through the woods, I'm praying, I'm meditating. And it is a holy spiritual, uh, you know, thing. And the idea that hunting is strictly going out there and killing is so asinine and it is so wrong. And to dispel the, you know, these These myths about what it means to be a hunter is to completely, you know, like you said there, and the killing aspect is just this tiny little aspect of the hunting, when really it is an entire uh, way of being and, um, you know, the, the gratitude and the life and just being connected to our outside world. You know, hunting season. You know, Darren. It starts in January when we're getting our our equipment tuned properly. When we start training. When we're going to the gym. When we're hiking. When we're setting up our trail camps. When we're sitting there quietly watching a herd of deer or elk and just enjoying being a part of nature. You know that that aspect of it is really I don't think considered when you talk about the morality of hunting and it should be. It should be part of the conversation.
7: I, I also completely agree um, that it should be. And I've, I've, I've written about this, so I agree with, with a lot of what you're saying. Maybe I'll just play, play devil's advocate a bit. There's, there's a few reasons people tend to really object to hunting and it has to do with the fact that harm is being done to an animal and that fundamentally whatever satisfaction the hunter is enjoying, is absolutely insignificant compared to the absolute loss of life, the loss of existence to the animal. So whatever benefit you get just simply can't be weighed against that. Now The the usual counter to that is, you know, we're all animals. Animals kill each other. We're we're omnivores. This is how it goes. So the next response is, yeah, but it's different when a lion takes a gazelle because they don't have a choice. That's what they do. They're not going to go full vigue right? It's just not going to happen. And so some people would say you as a, as a rational hominid, you could decide I'm not engaging in this. So then they think, strictly speaking, if you don't have to engage in it, why are you choosing to engage in it? Okay. I, I think there are plenty of ways to respond to that. For me, the real objection people seem to have, and this is why I, I loved what both of you just said, because I think it's a great counter. I think it's kind of an objection from character. The perception is that people who hunt really enjoy killing. And they mm-hmm. enjoy killing things yeah. that are no threat to them. They enjoy killing things <laughs> that they don't need to kill. They enjoy eating meat that they really don't need to eat. And I, and I will push that. We yeah. don't need it, right? We don't. But then you um, get I to- eat meat, so I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not throwing stones, but we do not. We don't need to eat it. And so then you get this extreme Walter Palmer scenario where people say, what is it in someone's soul that makes them fly around the world and pay tens of thousands of dollars to shoot something just so they can get a picture or get a trophy. And I think they get so kind of repulsed at the, the perceived character that person has. But as many of my hunting friends, and as you guys just expressed, for many, perhaps most hunters, that's not the motivation, right. that's not the experience. It's a kind of somber union with, with nature.
6: One in 1,000 would be a sport hunter, or maybe one in 10,000 maybe. But, you know, just to answer your one question, what would push somebody to become, to go fly around the world and do that? Maybe it's the fact that we are no longer living our base animal nature, which for a man is to generally hunt and harvest and war. And you talk about, you know, human nature. We want to talk about human nature as if humanity is this enlightened, you know, species. We're not. Let's just be very clear on that. And so if somebody feels for whatever reason, perhaps they have a stronger um, predator drive as a human then maybe that's how they are getting, you know, use utilizing what's available to them to do that. I'm not saying that's the truth or not. I'm just proposing that that could be one of the ideas.
0: Aaron, your, your comment, it reminded me of that John Muir quote where he says, I'd rather be in the mountains thinking of God than in church, thinking about the mountains. Um, and that's yeah. one that's kind of driven a, a big part of my journey. I, I want to give each of you, this has been fantastic. Um, you know, we, some people are saying, well, it's not representing my perspective. I'm not hearing my perspective on the panel. Um, uh, that's kind of what happens when you don't have 10,000 people on the panel because everybody is going to feel very strongly, very differently about this. I love that the three of you bring your unique perspectives. And, and as I often do with our guests and with panels like this, I'd like to ask you to give us something to walk with and something to think about. Um, so, Darren, why don't you go first? Sort of a closing remark, so to speak.
8: Sure. Um, I think all I hope that this conversation did, I know we got hung up on the morality side of things, but is to really question where your food is coming from and your place in that cog. This is a, I think we've proven that this is a conveyor belt that cannot be shut off right now. I think that has come to light through COVID. And I just, I hope that people questioning these values that they did in the past 14 months of where their food is coming from sticks with them for the next 14 years. I hope that, that that isn't a fad.
6: Aaron, um, I would hope that uh, I guess that people are open to the idea that um, perhaps their opinion or their morality um, doesn't necessarily consummate a correct assumption of how beneficial hunting can be from not only, um, you know, an environmental uh, aspect, but also from a personal aspect. And I mean, I'll just speak to that, that during COVID, a lot of people found Um, you know, a a calming or a sense of centering um, in these crazy times by going out and reconnecting with nature and how they choose to do that, I don't think is open for judgment. Um, I just think that everybody should allow others to live as they see fit and, um, you know, do no real harm,
7: right? Doc? Anytime you're going to be taking a life, there's a moral issue involved. You need to think about whether it's right or wrong. You need to think about why you think it's right or wrong. And if you can find someone who disagrees with you and try and exchange reasons. Thank Absolutely.
0: you to the three of you for this. <laughs> I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Uh, you delivered in a big way. Uh, Dr. Do- Joshua Duclos, uh, Ph.D. out of Boston University, now publishing a book called Value, Morality and Wilderness. Uh, Darren Chevery, go check out his restaurant, Chartier in Beaumont. Uh, what, hang on. How can people support your restaurant right now, by the way? what's let's, let, let's acknowledge real quick oh. restaurants. Have
8: been- Great. Yeah, sorry. Right, right now we're actually we're we're opening not till next week. We're shut down okay. for a week, um, and we're actually uh, doing some silent auction stuff. So if you go visit our social media, we're doing some silent auction. Some of our the management team has come together, and we're auctioning off our services to try and uh, raise some money for our team because not working for two weeks in hospitality without tips is a huge challenge. So, um, or you can go to our website at dinecharcier.com and buy some gift cards would be really helpful. love it.
0: Love it. One of my favorite restaurants uh, in the province. Uh, you and and your wife Sylvia absolutely. Amazing amazing um and and of course aaron uh follow aaron on instagram at aaron awol it's it's like i it's it's fantastic it's gleaned insight when we knew we were putting a hunting panel together i was like she's got to be on it so thanks for making (laughs) some time for us today and we we should mention if people are looking to sell their home they could look you up too right aaron thanks so much to the three of you much appreciated thanks so much right thanks folks
6: Thank you. That
0: was a great conversation. Uh, That roundtable is produced by uh, Sarah Hoyles, who also does an amazing job passing along things called top sheets. And you'll see right here at the top in the asterisks asterisk says uh, we will be uh, looking at First Nations or Indigenous hunting traditions on a later show. And then there's stars and asterisks all over. It's in all caps. In all caps, right at the top, which would indicate to me you probably were uh, uh, desiring to have me mention that before I introduced this hunting panel. But I'm really excited for that conversation too because it's going to be. You and I were talking about this behind the scenes, so to speak, off air. Mm. And I think it's 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 to me, it's such a bigger conversation. I want to have a conversation about indigenous approach to to hunting, to sustainability, to stewardship, to tradition, to spirituality. I think it I think it demands its own focus. And so that's something we're working on. But I mean,
3: not to not to make it into a silo. Like it's not that uh, the desire is to make it like it's in a vacuum. That's that's not what. The goal is the show
0: is not like we don't we don't sort of say we will be discussing this issue from nine fifteen to nine forty five Mountain Time on this one day we will then stamp it file away and consider the issue closed it's never how we approach it
3: right and I think talking about hunting with those three amazing perspectives and wow the morality piece and hearing from someone that's studying it is just. It was incredible, but there's so many other voices and experiences that we're going to have a chance to hear from in the
0: future. And and you know what? I mean, I'm hearing from uh, dairy farmers today. I'm hearing from Pulse farmers. I'm hearing from consumers. Somebody in the grocery game has been in touch with us. (laughs) We're talking about people that are working on food waste, people that are working in anti-poverty initiatives. The, The audience response already has been amazing. The podcast hasn't even dropped yet. This is just our live audience did anybody say anything that changed your mind on any front today? Or is there something you're going to be wrestling with moving forward?
3: Hmm. I, I'm i already complicated enough as is. <laughs> like, I I really, really wrestle with my food choices. Yeah. I do. I, the thing that I most appreciated was Darren and his honesty around it's like it's hard and I I like it is death and it is like I'm doing and same with Jeff. I mean, Jeff in our first panel talking about calling himself a murderer.
5: Yeah. Um, yeah.
3: Like, so to me, I wrestle, I wrestle with it and I wrestle. I know that I'm but one person and when we, the discussion around water and, looking at how we use land that it's it's from corporation standpoints that as one little person one little consumer how much of a difference can i make but i still feel that i need to be i need to choose wisely and yeah. i need to be intentional
0: if that's kind of it's a kind of a trendy word intentional is one of my favorite words really yes okay Be intentional about what you say, about what you watch, about what you listen to, about what you donate to, about what you comment on, about what you dig in on, about what you let slide. Do it with intent. I love this from Hawes. The religious man goes to church and ponders hunting. The spiritual man goes hunting and ponders God. I've seen that said about fishing. I've seen it said about hiking. I think people probably Mm. customize the quote to serve their own purposes, but I'll take it and register it. And I like it, Hawes. Sue, Sue, you and me both. Sue I'm right there with you she says I am loving these panels I'm confused and I'm also enlightened and I have a lot of thinking to do and much introspecting Sue that is the best feedback we could Mm. possibly ever receive Sam did you change your mind on anything in, in, in the last two hours.
2: All right, first of all, <clears throat> I want to point something out uh, that's a little off topic, but if, if you can see on camera four here, the way our studio is laid out, we have, we have a big screen right here that shows the show, and Sarah actually has a, it's hard to see because of the trees in the way, but there's a little screen in front of Sarah on her desk. Throughout the entire panel, Sarah was jumping up out of her chair to, chair to watch it on the big screen because it was so engaging. True <laughs> um, story. <laughs> yeah, it was just like, that was, uh, oh my God, that was one of the best panels I think we, we will ever do. Um... Whoa whoa, 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 whoa! Okay, that's fair. Yeah, I, I shouldn't. I shouldn't set the well, bar hey, there. You know, I like shows. it. Yeah. You have laid down the gauntlet, yeah. Hoiles. Oh, you, you gotta, want me to
0: bring more? You, gotta <laughs> I keep, will bring you got to keep bring more. You
2: better keep delivering. Yeah, I think going into this panel, I was I was very aligned with with probably with Ryan on this one, in that like I I know a lot of hunters. I've never done it myself. I've eaten hunted meat. Um, I have uh, a really good friend who's a vegetarian that loves game meat like she basically she's she's a vegetarian because her you know her personal code is is factory farming and that's her issue and if she meets somebody that does that goes for a hunt and she gets some of the meat out of it she's so happy because it's you know it's a little bit more of that straight from the land one animal harvested give it to as many people as you want type of mentality and that's kind of how i went into this conversation so i don't think i've really moved a whole lot i think that you know between our first and our second discussion um The thing that really kind of hammered down to me is that if you want to make a difference, if you want something, if you want to make a choice that is, you know, moves the needle in the sustainability perspective, eat less, be more mindful about what you're eating. Buy from producers that are close to you so that you're not paying for jet fuel to bring your food in. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that that's one of the things that we, you know, a lot of people like to like to just eat vegetables and like to eat sustainably and 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 insist on eating you know uh grapefruits and lemons in the middle of the winter sure and and you know you're you're burning jet fuel to get that here i just i hope you remember that so it's 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 about choices it's about it's always going to be damaging To the environment to consume food. Are are we going to be damaging over here? Are we going to be damaging over here? Are we probably going to spread it around a little bit? Because I think that that's impossible to not have an
0: environmental impact, right? Exactly. So I mean, the word "damage" the word "damage" is a loaded word. But we will impact the environment Okay regardless we'll go with of,
2: impact right? over damage Sure. Well, and I'm not trying to yeah. soften
0: the power because you're making A great point Sam mm-hmm. I mean I'm investigating My own practice where I'll go and then I'll bring up halibut myself our Guide Ben takes us out when we can uh, Just off Prince Rupert and, and, and We'll bring up you know 110 pound Halibut and they're unbelievable nothing tastes better Than the fish you caught yourself you know what I'd like to have on it Though mango chutney and I Did not pick up the mangoes grown in Prince Rupert I'll tell you that much so you're giving us something to think About and I don't mean to diminish the power of what you're saying, but I think the word damage is loaded and the word impact is, is is accurate. Now, we do damage our environments inherently. Look what we do to the ozone layer. Look at our pollution. But at the same time, is there a certain cost to uh, human ingenuity and, and development and, and population growth and industry expansion and economic growth? And of course there is, Yeah. right? This will be the home for these difficult conversations. We don't want to assume anything. Assume anything's right, we will assume a few things are wrong on the show. We have basic minimum standards. I appreciated that, it, that there was yes. clarification in the roundtable that, that it's not simply a free for all and that judgment is always to be considered off the table. We do judge people unapologetically on a number of fronts as a society. I think that's what makes us decent and ethical and civilized.
3: Well, that's what I mean. When we're in community with people, that is required it yeah. is required if if we're just living on our own, you know, no big deal, i'll just i'll guide i'll be guided by m- my own sense of what's right and wrong, but when you live in community, you need you can't just be thinking about yourself and how your moral- morality values i just i really appreciated unpacking of the terms and yeah, how some terms can be used by some people in some ways and then having the doc there, i love being like, "hey doc." um having the doc there to be like This is actually what morality is.
0: Jillian says, my black and white science brain had a hard time with how the panelists seemed to struggle to provide clear reasoning for the positions they were taking. She says, I don't disagree with their stances, though. What I liked was that they're, they're on the record articulating something like oftentimes I can feel this is what separates a lot of great orators from everybody else is the ability to be able to take what you feel and what you think and to present it in compelling concise fashion Mm. and very few people can actually do that so we ask these three and the three before them and the three to come on our follow-up panels and our different angles and investigation on this we're asking them to show up on the record on a high-profile platform and answer massive questions I mean, is hunting moral or is hunting ethical or or and, and you even saw some hesitation where Aaron and Darren both go as, as they as they, you know, prepare to comment on, for example, sport hunting or, or big game hunting in Africa, as an example, going uh, kind of before they make their comment. Because they know where it's going to land and, and Aaron knows I mean Aaron's followers on Instagram Darren's uh, Darren at, at, at Is it humble hunter Or humble hunting I can't remember uh, His his Instagram handle It's uh, right. Humble hunting um, He's he's like He's an artist Is what he is uh, uh, With regards to how he portrays His love for po- Oh my gosh I just realized I didn't get him to do an elk call <gasps> How did I call not him get back. him to do an elk get call Get him on the line he had, What Oh, he is the current Canadian elk calling champion, and he competed in the North American finals. Chevy, if you're still watching, if you're still tuned in, sign back into our Zoom. We'll bring you on for an elk call. There's no way in hell I I can't let that slide. How did I do that? That's me dropping. I was I was like you. I was just I was just listening to this conversation, like yeah. forgetting everything else that um, could also be like exclusive content It could be exclusive maybe, maybe just to our Patreon supporters what That's do you right. think we're always Looking for ways to thank our Patreon supporters uh, Speaking of which we just Launched our Real Talk merch Today you, you, you've you been seeing me you, you, I've, been, I've been slyly Sipping from this fabulous Diner mug for the past Couple of days on the show if you check Your email if you're a Patreon supporter of ours You'll know that as of 8 o'clock mountain 10 o'clock eastern this morning you have a 48 hour Head start on everybody else to order your Real talk merch We're talking about Our diner mugs Our real talk Ryan Jesperson tees And our fabulous Snapback caps um, I'd say the cap's My favorite But the mug When you hook Your finger in It just sit. It just sits It's one of those It just sits there Perfectly Unbelievable um, So uh, Saturday Saturday At 8 a.m. Mountain, 10 o'clock Eastern, our online uh, e-commerce site, our shop will open to everybody at ryanjesperson.com. If you want that head start, you can follow us uh, and support us on Patreon. We're so grateful uh, to the people that do that as well. Wanted to give a shout out to the teams at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge today. If all this talk about getting outdoors has you thinking about what's going to get you out there, your rig, maybe it's because, you know, it's time for a replacement. It's time for an upgrade. Why not consider... The vehicle that has been known since the 1940s for its off-road capabilities, the Jeep brand is trusted more than any other brand when it comes to the off-road market, and they have better selection at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge than anywhere else in the province of Alberta. If you're doing a bit more heavy hauling, you're looking for something in the three-quarter ton, one-ton category, look no further than Ram. Of course, Ram, you will find the best selection in the province right now. And that's saying something, because selection's tight right now at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. Our friends at Freezen, Freezen Brothers want to remind you that Of course, number one, their 15th Alberta location is open right now in South Edmonton. Number two, they've got 15 of them across the province of Alberta ready to help you exercise your license to grill. So, whether it's grilled sourdough bread you're going to be serving as part of a garlic bread and Caesar salad combo, whether you're going to be grilling some zucchini or whether it's Alberta beef, pork, chicken, turkey, or hey, tofu you'll find it at Friesen Brothers for more than 65 years Alberta grown and Alberta owned also a big shout out to the team at Northwest Fest boy did we get a lot of commentary Sarah Hay, today from listeners that spent time watching the white noise documentary last night. Unbelievable. The filmmaker joining us yesterday for a very powerful conversation on white supremacy, white nationalism, and and what it means for the future of small C conservative politics, most especially in the United States. Uh, Daniel, was an unbelievable interview. Northwest Fest is running right now on demand through till May 16th, so you still have a chance to watch White Noise or Vinyl Nation, the story about the resurgence of records. We talked to the filmmakers about that last week. Other great docs as well. 40 Feet Feature films, 40 short films at NorthwestFest.ca on demand anytime, no matter where you are. Through till May 16th, Real Talk is a proud supporter, the title sponsor of the Global Visions Film Series at Northwest Fest. So we began our show today with with a pretty big talker, so to speak. This is what people are talking about around the water cooler. what am I talking about? Nobody's going into work right now. The metaphorical water Around cooler. the Zoom call? Around the Zoom call on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. That everybody's yeah, buzzing because Todd Lowen, former Wild Roser, now United Conservative uh, MLA, uh, has uh, essentially called... No, not essentially, literally Mm. and directly called for Premier Jason Kenney's resignation. He basically says, hey, listen, I mean, this is one of the things that jump out at me. We did not unite around blind loyalty to one man. He talks about how Albertans have lost trust and lost faith in the government. He says, because, Premier, you have not brought needed balance and reason to the discussion. He says that Albertans are no longer willing to extend us any benefit of the doubt on most issues. Well, he's no longer alone. Uh, there's another MLA that's that stepped forward. It, it's David Hansen. He's the United Conservative MLA out of Bonneville, Cold Lake. And you can see on his social media, Todd, I applaud your courage. I stand behind your decision. I hear the same thing from our supporters in my area. I along with many of our colleagues share in your frustration. We along with many Albertans worked too hard to unite conservatives to hand this province back to the ndp thanks for taking a stand that from mla david hansen so what does this mean? This is essentially a double down on the letter that 17 MLA's Alberta MLAs, signed a while ago calling out the government for its 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 response to COVID-19. They want them to end the lockdown. Now, MLA Lowen's letter is supercharged, right? He talks about a hostile federal government. And, and I know that for that reason, a lot of his message is being lost on a lot of Albertans who are saying, hey, listen, this isn't exactly paving the way for... any reality any scenario any leadership that would better serve albertans right now but what it could mean is that there's either a rift at the top the leadership and the rest of the party ask allison redford how that typically works out what it could also mean is potentially this party splits does jason kenny let that happen jason kenny we know desperately wants to be prime minister he can't stand the current prime minister what message would it send to federal conservatives if jason Kenney unites alberta conservatives and then lets that party crumble the first party in alberta history to receive more than a million votes a million and fifty thousand back uh, in april of 2019 will he see that party split I know that we're going to have a a lot to talk about with regards to what audience members make of this. Uh, Tanya says the caucus meetings canceled. Who knows when the next shoe drops? You'll remember that the premier has canceled all goings on at the Alberta legislature for the next while. It now makes sense with regards to why he's done that. I'm curious to know, Real Talkers, where you land on this. We're going to keep an eye on our hashtag #RealTalkRJ. Uh, Sarah Hoyles, of course, is a big part of what you do in this role as producer of this show is, is keep an eye on what people are saying and 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 sort of forecast if you can the implications of a move like this. How significant you think this letter is? Todd Lowen resigned as part of this letter as caucus chair. That's a big move. This is a biggie.
3: Yeah, there's no denying it. And I think it's everybody on all of all political stripes. And, you know, people that are apolitical are definitely feeling the ripple effects. The thing that I'm seeing a lot on Twitter right now is people saying, okay, call an election. Let's drop the writ. Let's, let's have an election. And to see that, I mean, that's looking like if some I, I would, I would wager a guess that they're probably more of an NDP supporter because they see that, you know, donations are way up for NDP support uh, for the UCP is way down uh, as far as approval ratings. So it seems like it would be ripe. <laughs> for an election for the NDP right now, so yeah, there is there are some calls for that to, to happen. Is let's let's
0: let's put this to a vote. You'll you'll notice that um, you know that that uh, the statement that I just read that was posted by MLA David Hansen in support of Todd Lowen. He says, we've worked too hard to unite conservatives to hand this province back to the NDP. Mm. Uh, I don't have Justice Minister Casey Madu's comments in front of me from a couple of days ago, but he essentially said the same thing. I don't think he said the word plead. He definitely didn't say beg. What did he say? He said something like, I I don't remember what it was, but he said something like, I implore you or I ask that you I ask that you not seek to divide us. This was a message publicly posted to a constituent, not seek to divide us and hand this province back to the NDP. It's on their radar. Yeah. Now, now, here's what makes this interesting. Sam, I'm curious for your insight on this as well, because this these aren't the progressives in the party no these aren't these aren't the progressives in the united conservative party that are saying hey listen um you know this this combative sort of nature with the uh you know with with the federal liberals uh has been costing albertans there's been no spirit of cooperation as a matter of fact it's been very inflammatory i mean that's what characterized jason kenny's entire mo right? i mean that's has been his political career that's how he's been since the very beginning right he's on the record suggesting the prime minister has the political depth of a finger bowl i mean Justin Trudeau is the prime minister. What does that say about Jason Kenney? I don't know, but he can't stand him, right? He's on the record calling Thomas Lukaszek, who was Alberta's deputy premier at the time, a complete and utter asshole. I mean, Jason Kenney has been not, is not afraid to pick fights and throw barbs and throw grenades. And then you look at who's running his communications, and it's pretty obvious that the spirits are aligned there, right? You look at Brock Harrison, how he ran Daniel Smith's communications, how he ran Andrew Shears' communications, I'll note that Daniel Smith never was premier. Andrew Shear never was prime minister, but I digress. So this isn't really a surprise. It's not progressives coming forward and saying we're being embarrassed across the rest of the country for Alberta's numbers and COVID response. We're being embarrassed by, by, by the attitude that people believe us uh, to be a bunch of, of regressive uh, you know, citizens, the, the, the embarrassing cousins, so to speak. It's not that faction of the party, uh, that, that I think diminishing faction of the party. These are not the progressives. Right. These are the the so-called freedom fighters. Right. These are the self-described patriots. Right. For the most part, these are rural MLAs, Angela Pitt and Drew Barnes and Todd Lowen and others uh, coming forward and saying, Premier. Right. These are the people that want the lockdown, so to speak, lifted, that want the restrictions eased, that want the mask orders in small municipalities and communities cancelled. So. The belief is that we cannot, their belief, we cannot hand the province back to the NDP. They believe that their position on this, easing restrictions, getting rid of masks, et cetera, is what's going to ensure that the United Conservative Party remains uh, or retains the popularity that it needs for the next two years. This, I believe, to be a flawed assumption. I do not believe that the majority of Albertans, there's four and a half million Albertans, I do not believe the majority would get behind the letter that these 17 MLAs signed. And so I understand why some people are waving red flags of caution around Todd Lowen's letter today. Sam, where do you see this going? Does the party split? I can't see it happening. It, everybody, and, and this is what people are ticked off about because they're the ones that knocked on the doors. They're the ones that fundraised. They're the ones that rallied. Jason Kenny's leading the party. There's a lot of people that did a lot of the work. These are the ones that are saying we work too hard to unite us to allow this to fall apart. You think it will?
2: Are they really united, though? And and I say that because they call themselves united. They're the united conservative party. They're united around approximately one thing. They don't like Rachel Notley. They're not united about anything else. They're not really united on policy. They're not really united on their vision for Alberta. There's this serious fissure that's appearing within the party. So I think to call this a united party in and of itself is an outright lie. They've never been united.
0: Well, not true. They They, they were united in a disdain for... Premier Notley, yes, they were united in a desire to to pull the NDP from power, and those are the same thing. Or generally speaking, (laughs) generally speaking, they're united in strong feelings against the prime minister. Okay, also kind of the same thing. So so, Sam, I'm going to push back for a sec. Those are not the same thing at all. The way that people feel about Rachel Notley, in big part, is is a misogynistic approach. She was treated differently than a whole lot of people. You didn't see former premiers with their faces up on driving ranges at golf courses. There's a real, people would have a different feeling, I think, if the NDP were being run by Rachel Notley's dad. A lot of people would feel differently about that, and people have very different feelings about the provincial NDP and the federal liberals. Those are not the same thing either. But I
2: digress. That's my opinion. Back to you. No, I think those are entirely the same thing, because they're united about things they don't like, not things that they like. Not things that they will do Not things that they see Going forward for this province They're only united around people They don't like Yeah uh,
3: Mark uh, Bin S L C Mark, Mark B, B And S L C Tuning In
2: live from Salt Lake City, Utah
0: <gasps> Okay They're
3: just Like obvi- <laughs> You're a newbie, Hoyles <laughs> Way to go You really That one up Where is it now They only They only hate Notley and Trudeau And someone else wrote It's gone flipped up But it's uh, United in hate so I feel like that's that's what I'm hearing from Sam is that they're united, but they're united in
0: hate. That's that's the call. I think goal. hate's a strong word, and 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 I'm actually not cool with calling it hate because I know a lot of people that supported the united conservatives that had high hopes for the united conservatives are desperate to see the economy on track they're desperate to save their family businesses and their investments and they believed jason kenny when he promised jobs economy and pipelines i do not think uh, some people sure may rally out of hate i absolutely will push back on the party being characterized the entire part this is what i got to yes uh, not yesterday uh, a few shows ago you know it, pe- people dig and discover that that private citizens that hold leadership roles in companies that advertise with this show have donated to a political party that they disagree with and they believe that this show should dump that advertiser and that to me is absolutely preposterous it's ridiculous Uh, i think that there's room for different people to support different political parties with high hopes you didn't get a million hate mongers turning out to vote for the united conservatives in april of 2019 I i think the word is unfair and, and I don't want our commentary to be characterized as unfair. If anything, as a matter of fact, you know, you look and people say tough, but fair. I always want to say our interviews may be tough, but they will always be fair, you know? And the word hate to me is a pretty strong word. You want to talk about white noise in the documentary we saw yesterday. I was, just, pull, I was just pulling up the quote where... Hate fits.
3: Yeah, where Daniel, the filmmaker, said, it's so easy to be seduced by hatred. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Let me find that quote. What was what was the one that I that that I, I told you that that just jumped out at me big time right at the beginning of the film? I'm going to find it on my phone in two seconds. Oh, here. it's the quote. This was a quote from from James Baldwin, Baldwin, yeah, who says, "I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hates so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain." And I think that you saw in the faces of a lot of the people, or at least lived out by the, some of the subjects of that documentary, I think that it's it's fair to say that pain is paramount uh, when it comes right. to some of their personal experience. And
3: like financial pain, uh, feeling like, like losing jobs, not having the same kind of uh, wealth that they are used to or had hoped for. Um, yeah. Just not getting the kind of services, resources, schools, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera,
0: et cetera. Et cetera. Yeah. I mean Alyssa here says it was a lot of rage voting maybe not hate but rage
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I think that that's bang on I think that's fair There's a uh, a truism in Canadian politics that a lot of people point out that we we don't elect people we fire them right? Mm. Um, Canadians, you know, we saw this in 2015 when the true Do- Do government came in if you remember that election that very long hundred-day long election um, i think canada kind of made up its uh its its mind its collective voting mind right off the bat that they wanted to kick out stephen harper and if you remember the being at election uh thomas mulcar and the ndp were serious front runners for months and months and months until the pendulum swung hard to the liberals because you know they had some momentum behind them and and in that entire scenario People were voting Against Harper They weren't voting For Trudeau They were voting Against Harper totally. And I think that That's kind of Played out here Like you talked about How Brock Harrison Has worked for um, Daniel Smith and, uh, and and Andrew Scheer And what that tells me Is that The guy that runs Comms for our current Premier Only knows how to be In opposition He doesn't know How to be in government Jason Kenney doesn't Really know how to be In government He knows how to Sling mud from the opposition mm. He doesn't know How to govern
0: well, he knows how to govern. I don't know if he knows how to lead. Kenny was a formidable federal cabinet minister. He's held senior yeah, right. roles. I mean, he's, he understands he's an experienced, the mechanisms of government. Ah, he's an experienced parliamentarian. Yeah. He's one of the smartest, savviest politicians in Canada. That's not always a compliment. Um, but but you're right. I mean, this, this is, I, I would think it's probably safe to assert that this experiment has not gone how Jason Kenny thought it was going to go. Uh, you would be right to point out that there's been a global economic crisis, that oil and gas has really stumbled, that uh, that the, the general population's perspective on things like pipelines has changed, that messaging has had to change, that other jurisdictions have had an influence. And then, of course, there is the global pandemic. Right. So it's uh, it's uh, you know, you get to a point where you say jobs, economy and pipelines, what would be a reasonable expectation uh, for a premier in this position? It's a difficult job. And it's a difficult job for premiers across the country. The question is, does the electorate, in this case, talking about Alberta, do Albertans trust Jason Kenney to lead the province through tough times? That's the question. Who expects there to be 3% office vacancy in downtown Calgary right now with three new pipelines under construction and the economy humming like it never has before? Nobody but do people trust Jason Kennedy to steer the ship? I don't think so, including from within his own caucus. The,
3: I think the thing that I'm, I just want to flag on that is that this all of these things were predicted. So the tanking of oil and the moving away from oil industry and oil production that was predicted. The pandemic also predicted. So these are things that could have been.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, to a certain degree, not not when he was on the campaign trail in 2019, but sure.
3: Oil, yes. Pandemic, yeah. no.
0: Jim Prentice told everybody.
3: Yes. So to me, to say like, oh, these are hard times. Shucks, darn. Too bad for Jason Kenney. It's like, no, no. You had time.
0: But everybody knew that. That was the whole point of the job. That was why Jobs Economy Pipeline was such a powerful message. Why it resonated with mm. so many people. That ultimately it was ended lie. up voting it was entirely you know, a lie. Well, well, well. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, you don't need to tell me. OK, I mean, I'm the guy that went on national radio with Charles Adler with a fucking blowtorch and earned himself out of any future <laughs> interviews with Jason Kenny. Nobody needs. I said it two years ago, so nobody needs to teach me about any of this. <laughs> I hate being the I hate being right about it. Show. I hate being right about it. But what I will tell you, what I will say is that a lot of people in good faith believed that Jason Kenny could deliver on jobs, economy and pipelines and it was not a million stupid people. No, no, Now, there, may, no, 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 ma- no, no, there no. may have been hundreds no. of thousands of gullible people, but not stupid and not hate mongers. They're my fellow Albertans. And a lot of you are pissed off right now and you feel betrayed. And this is a home for meaningful, gutsy, fair, uncomfortable conversations. And we'll keep having them. Some things were on the horizon. Jim Prentice knew that there was going to be trouble. That's why he dropped a budget in front of Albertans and called an early election. That's why he said that Albertans needed to look in the mirror. That's why he talked about a six and a half billion dollar deficit. That was the whole point. So, yes. But at the same time, a charlatan rode in on a big blue pickup truck and convinced everybody else that he had the answer. Maybe not everybody, but more than a million people for the first time in Alberta's history. And now we're starting to hear from more and more of those people. And that's the feedback that I think speaks the loudest. It's not from the detractors and the people that have been battling with Jason Kenney since he was you know, the founding CEO of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation or one of the youngest MPs in Ottawa or one of the rising stars on the conservative front bench. There are people that he hasn't been able to stand, people that haven't been able to stand him for for years, for decades. We're starting to hear from the base. We're starting to hear from the grassroots. We're starting to hear from the donors and that's when this becomes especially newsworthy we're going to be keeping an eye on our inbox to say the least today talk at RyanJesperson.com. of course you can hit us up on our hashtag #RealTalkRJ anytime 24 hours a day coming up on trash talk tomorrow i suspect we're going to have some emails to sift through you know where you can submit those via our email inbox and of course that's presented by our friends at local waste local waste has integrity as a corporate value it's literally up on the wall so What does that mean? When you talk about integrity in waste management, what does it mean? It means they're not going to sell you more than you need. It means they want to grow their relationship with you while your business grows. So while you may have a ma and pa shop or a small restaurant or a startup that needs a small bin right now for your management and your garbage, your waste, your recycling... Maybe a year from now, you're going to need a big bin. They're not going to sell you the big bin now. As Mikel over there on Team Local Waste said to me, air is free but it's expensive to dump. (laughs) They're going to give you the service you need via localwaste.ca. Ask them for by name. Mikel, Chris, Lauren. They love to talk trash and they want your business. Also, big shout out to the team at Kubi Energy. And thanks to all the Real Talkers. We wish you well. Those of you that answered their open call for resumes. They've closed that job opening and we hope that Real Talkers are going to find work. But in the future, Jake said, if we continue to grow like this, if we keep getting as many projects in Alberta and BC as we are right now out of their offices in Edmonton and Kamloops. He said we'll be putting out another call. They're proud to partner with us. We feel the same way about them. Tesla certified, uh, oftentimes journeyman installers. If not, they're electrical apprentices and they handle all the paperwork to make the process easier for you. You can learn more about what they're doing in solar sustainable energy at kubienergy.ca. As mentioned, tomorrow, really excited about our roundtable. We're going to be focusing on innovators in different sectors. We'll be inspired, and we're going to get into what's going on on the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, Palestine v. Israel, Insight That Matters. Have a wonderful Thursday, friends. Again, Patreon supporters, check your email. We're close to selling out a merch. We'll have an update tomorrow morning. The